The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Opioid Epidemic. You've no doubt heard the term opioid epidemic get thrown around in the news. The epidemic, also known as the opioid crisis, has been a hot-button issue for quite a while now. You also probably know someone, either someone close to you or someone you know of, that's struggling or has struggled with opioids. It'll be hard to find a person whose life hasn't, in one way or another, been affected by these very powerful drugs. Opioids are a class of drugs either naturally found in the opium poppy plant or made in a lab to work like drugs naturally found in the opium poppy plant. Naturally, we've been using them for thousands of years, but the opioid epidemic is new, just a few decades old. The opioid epidemic specifically refers to the growing number of deaths and hospitalizations from opioids over the last 20 to 30 years in the U.S., including from prescriptions and also illicit drugs. In recent years, death rates from these drugs have ramped up to over 70,000 in a 12-month span here in the States. Drug overdose is now the leading cause of accidental death in America, largely due to this opioid epidemic. While the epidemic and its havoc may be relatively recent, we meat sacks have such a long history using opium and opium derivatives. We love it. We love feeling good from it. It has to do with the way our brain chemistry works as we're pre-programmed with opioid receptors that process the brain's naturally occurring opiate neurotransmitters, the stuff our body releases when we're in pain to relieve that pain. Also, part of our reward cycle, that dopamine that makes us feel like a uh, we have have a really good sense of accomplishment, just feel great, produces euphoria a sense of inner peace, tranquility. Opiates feel good when they're in your system, but of course, they also can uh, create terrible side effects. Addiction, withdrawals, not being in control of your body, a high that just keeps getting lower every time you achieve it, overdoses that can and often do end in death. Today, we're gonna explore the opioid epidemic in depth. How do they work on our brains? How can they kill us? Why are they so addictive? And did Big Pharma create millions of opioid addicts knowing their new products were insanely addictive and dangerous? All this and more right now on this drug-fueled edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening 
Happy Monday. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Welcome back. A lot of interesting information to cram into your ear holes today. Recording like usual from the Suck Dungeon in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Just starting to spit snow today, just a little bit. As I record, come on, snow, let's open up the ski hills. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the suck master, the fresh prince of Beverly Hills, not Bel Air. How did I mess that up last week? Idiot who recently snorted coke with a stranger, not thinking about how it could be laced with a powerful opioid like fentanyl. And this is Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina. Please don't judge us for the extra holiday wait. Praiseable jangles and thanks for continuing to kick out great holiday tunes, Triple M. Uh, recording this before Thanksgiving, hoping I had a good time down in Riggins, Idaho with uh, some family, guessing I did. Had a great time in Denver for sure, and Loveland, Colorado for sure, a little while back with many of you. Thanks for coming to the Comedy Works and uh, the Rialto. It was a blast. Love Colorado. Love all that sunshine. Uh, hoping I have fun in Tampa this week. Looking forward to uh, more warmth than Colorado and hopefully some more sunny days. And a, lot, and a lot of places to get smoothies randomly. You know I love a smoothie. And looking forward to some great Cuban food. Not as much there as there is in Miami, but a lot more than there is here in Idaho. Uh, Tacoma coming up, and that's the last stand-up dates of 2021. And then so many fun places coming up in the first half of 2022. Hollywood, showbiz, uh, La Jolla, a.k.a. San Diego, Austin, Orlando, Oklahoma City, Charlotte, Missoula, Tempe, Salt Lake City, Chicago, Davenport, Raleigh, and Atlanta. Hotlanta. Uh, links to the dates at dancummins.tv. One more real quick announcement and then some show. A lot of show. Uh, last reminder that our charity this November is the veteran-focused IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, dedicated to serving and empowering the post-9-11 veterans community. And for more info, you can, of course, go to IAVA.org. And now for a topic that possibly touched the lives of literally everyone listening. Again, you've either uh, likely, uh, you know, been prescribed an opioid yourself or have recreationally used one yourself or at least know someone or are related to someone who's struggling or has struggled with some form of opioid addiction. Way too common. Uh, for me personally, although we were never close as adults, uh, we did share a bedroom for six months or so growing up. Uh, I lost a, a stepbrother to opioid addiction. Uh, Jake struggled with heroin for years. Starting somewhere around the time uh, he dropped out of high school, his life quickly became a cycle of stealing to get things he uh, could then sell to get money to buy drugs to then, you know, getting caught for stealing things or for, you know, using drugs, going to prison, getting out of prison, using again, stealing again, being incarcerated again, and then eventually apparently feeling so hopelessly caught in this terrible cycle and probably worrying that it would just never end, uh, he took his own life by shooting himself in the mouth. Sadly, uh, variants of his story, not that uncommon. Statistically, a large percentage of us have used opioids before, either recreationally or because we've experienced some kind of pain. They were used in pain management. If you've had your wisdom teeth out or really almost any kind of surgery that leaves you with uh, you know, significant pain management needs, you have likely been prescribed opioids. Uh, I once around a decade ago had a nagging cough I could just not get rid of. The lining of my esophagus uh, became inflamed or irritated or something. And one of the things I was prescribed was codeine cough syrup. I don't remember exactly the symptoms I had, but I do remember codeine cough syrup. My God, did I love it. Of course I did. Opioids, very good at their job. Uh, codeine, weak, weaker in action uh, than his more common painkilling cousin, morphine, used typically as a pain reliever and uh, uh, or as a cough suppressant. 
I'll define codeine, morphine, a bunch of other common types of opioids here soon. Uh, anyways, holy shit, did that syrup work? Opiates, not always bad. Sometimes, you know, very helpful. There's a lot of reasons they become very popular. And, uh, you know, only one of them is because they're very addictive. Not only did that cough syrup suppress my cough, it gave me literally the best night of sleep in my life. I still think about this night of sleep. And this was like over 10 years ago. I, I took it before bed. <laughs> the first night I took it, I slept for, and I just remember this because I was talking about it later. I slept for 14 hours straight. Best night of sleep of my life. 14 hours of hard, deep, undisturbed quality sleep. Did not wake up once to use the bathroom. Uh, did not even change positions. That was like one of the weirdest parts to me. I woke up in the exact same position that I'd fallen asleep in. Like, like a, and, and not even a, a position I normally sleep in. I just like laid on my back, fell asleep instantly. And then like the covers were undisturbed and just woke up 14 hours later in the exact same position. It was fucking eerie. It was magical. Oh man, my, my prescription, you know, one of so many opioid prescriptions. And I remember then thinking like, oh, I could have some, I could get into some trouble with this. I could get used to this real easy. Uh, in just the year 2017, healthcare providers across the U.S. wrote more than 191 million prescriptions. That's so many in one year for opioid pain medication, a rate of 58.7 prescriptions per 100 people. That is nuts. A lot of prescriptions get prescribed extremely, uh, or, you know, people get prescribed extremely addictive opioids year after year. And likewise, a high number of people have struggled with addiction. In 2017, again, uh, alone, there was a 11.4 million past year opioid misusers age 12 or older in the U.S., Population that year, 325 million. 3.5% of the U.S. population had misused opioids in just the past year alone. And not just had used, had like, you know, abused. One in 28. The opioid epidemic is definitely a topic that hits close to home for a lot of people. It's an emotional topic that I'm going to try to suck in a rational way, including uh, looking at the perspectives of some people who don't believe that opioid use is necessarily a bad thing. In our timeline, we'll look at the uh, long history of meat sacks use of opioids, Oh, we've used them for a long, long time. Probably aren't going to stop anytime soon. But how we've used them in the past few decades, that is new. Recent usage is different and troubling. More needs to be done if we're going to curtail the current opioid epidemic and stop losing you know, tens of thousands of people a year to overdoses. Uh, we'll look at some possible solutions at the end of the show. Let's get into all of it right now. So what exactly are people talking about when they refer to the opioid epidemic? Uh, mostly when that term is thrown around, it's in relation to the rise in the consumption of opioids, specifically in the United States in the past 25 to 30-ish years, also often called the opioid crisis. Other nations have been dealing with an increasing amount of opioid abuse as well, but no one loves opioids like the U.S. We're number one. We're number one. Drugs, 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 drugs. Uh, to show how we stack up against the rest of the world, in 2016, for every million people, the U.S. was prescribing just under 50,000 doses. Canada, second most in the world. All right, just over 30,000 doses prescribed for every million people. So way down from us, 50,000 to 30,000. Uh, New Zealand, just to kind of show how we line up with the perspective or, you know, compared to uh, most places in the world, New Zealand, 15th down the list. So still really high out of all the countries in the world, uh, around 10,000 doses. So the U.S. prescribing roughly five times as many opioids per capita than the nation with the 15th highest rate of opioid prescriptions in the world. And again, drugs, drugs, drugs. We fucking love drugs here in America. But only the hard shit if it's prescribed. Then it's good and clean and wholesome. Shoot up heroin in an alley. What's wrong with you, you fucking dirty, worthless, worthless stupid junkie? Come on. 
would have your doctor overprescribe you essentially the same drug for the same problem, just one that comes in a prescription bottle instead of a little baggie. Oh, that's totally cool. That's the kind of narcotics that honest, hardworking Americans use and abuse and get addicted to and have their lives fucking completely unraveled to uh, thanks to that addiction. Uh, the groundwork for the opioid crisis late in the 1980s when pain increasingly became recognized as a problem that required adequate treatment. Uh, before the 80s, pain management for a long time in the U.S. was basically dealt with the still popular today in some circles, tough it out or walk it off approaches. That is how I was raised. Weird that something could work better than those approaches. I mean, crazy that if, say, you have crushed discs in your spine and now your vertebrae are slamming into each other thanks to no longer having nature shock absorbers in between them, uh, that there could be a better way to deal with that pain than just, you know, walking it off. Strange that there could be a more effective way of dealing with stomach ulcers or rheumatoid arthritis than just toughing it out. Uh, U.S. states began to start passing intractable pain treatment acts in the 80s, which removed the threat of prosecution for physicians who treated their patients' pain aggressively with controlled substances. I wonder who lobbied for those acts to be passed. Hmm, Big Pharma maybe? Uh, Big Pharma in just 2016 spent $152 million just on lobbying in Washington, D.C. Back in 1995, the American Pain Society, a physician's organization in Chicago, an organization I have to wonder if Big Pharma financially supported, launched a campaign that framed pain as a fifth vital sign that should be monitored and managed as a matter of course, the same way as heart rate and blood pressure. Before these changes, right, back in the uh, early 80s, prior to the 80s, opioids were prescribed mainly for short-term uses, such as pain relief after surgery uh, or for people with advanced cancer or other terminal conditions. They weren't used in ongoing pain management. Not anymore. We will talk about laudanum and other older opioids being used for long-term pain management, like the 19th century and earlier. But they weren't being uh, used for ongoing pain management because there was this concern that prescribing opioids for you know long-term use might not end well because, well, heroin. Heroin's been thought to be pretty damn addictive and destructive for quite some time. And a lot of people assume the same would be true for other you know uh, newer opioids and those people would be right. But in the 80s, large portion of the medical community began to convince themselves that maybe, just maybe, These new opioids weren't that addictive after all. Not the good, clean, prescribed kind made by U.S. pharmaceutical companies, U.S.A., right? If we have something to do with it, it has to be good, right? A variety of pharmaceutical companies uh, who had a lot of money to gain from selling opioids were working real hard to reassure doctors that these drugs, these opioids, this new shit, that's totally fine. Shows up in a little orange bottle. It has to be safe. By 2014, the annual U.S. prescription opioid market was worth $24 billion a year. This massive industry really got going with a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980, one that reported that uh, of 11,882 hospitalized people who were prescribed opioids, only four became addicted, only four and almost 12,000. But this stupid fucking short letter to the editor, it provided no evidence to back up this claim. Who wrote it? I don't know, probably a big pharma exec. Not even kidding. Years later, A widely cited 1986 study involving only 38 people, just 38, that's fucking nothing, advocated using opioids to treat chronic pain unrelated to cancer, saying that prescription opioids were great at pain management and not that addictive. And that's half true. They are great at pain management, but they're super addictive. Uh, The the prevailing view now is that this and uh, other similar studies were just not well done or their results were, you know, intentionally heavily manipulated. Uh, overinterpreted, straight up faked, the sample size, you know, far too small, et cetera. But at the time, this kind of shit was enough to convince a lot of people who are going to make a lot of money to say, ah, fuck it. 
Opioids treat pain very well, and that's important. And it makes us doctors and pharmaceutical execs and salespeople a lot of money. So, you know, win, win, win. <laughs> Let's not overthink it. Let's not worry about anything else. I mean, how bad could a cousin of heroin be? And then cut to like a mid-80s scene of Vietnam vets strung out and homeless across the fucking West Coast because of a heroin addiction they picked up fighting for America. <laughs> Ignore those guys. That's, <laughs> that's totally different. That's last, last, last week's opioids. Get out of here. Uh, I actually don't think it was, it was totally that nefarious. Opioids, as you uh, will learn, I mean, they are very good at treating pain. I'm, I'm sure some people, execs included, who are part of this problem here, I'm sure, you know, they were at least able to convince themselves like, yeah, but pain is, you know, is terrible. And people in chronic pain, that is horrible. That is a real, you know, debilitating situation. And this is going to help them. And then they just kind of ignored some of their stats or maybe they weren't good at reading stats. I don't know. I'm trying to find some kind of positive in this. Uh, it, was, it was definitely at the very least, you know, the addictive qualities of these new opiates downplayed by the medical community at large. Uh, because of a fresh new perspective on opioids in the early 80s, prescriptions for pain management increased gradually throughout the 80s and early 90s. Then OxyContin showed up and, oh, what a game changer OxyContin was. No opioid has contributed more to the current opioid epidemic than this motherfucker. OxyContin began to be manufactured by Purdue Pharma. Founded in 1892, based in Stamford, Connecticut. Purdue had been making pain management medication since the start of the 70s. And then in 1996, its extended release formulation of oxycodone, oxycontin, first hit the market and quickly became the company's biggest money maker by far. And then Purdue had a very long and very profitable run with oxycontin. Then in 2019, drowning in litigation for starting the opioid epidemic that made its execs rich, and I'm sure hoping to get off the hook for a lot of uh, money people now wanted from them, Purdue filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. On October 1st, or I'm sorry, on October 21st, 2020, Purdue reached a settlement potentially worth $8.3 billion, admitting that it, it, quote, knowingly and intentionally conspired and agreed with others to aid and abet doctors dispensing medication without a legitimate medical purpose. Awesome. Good job, you motherfuckers. Intentionally prescribing opioids, knowing they had no legitimate medical purpose and many prescriptions and knowing this shit was super addictive. What could go wrong? How, how could millions of lives end up being heavily damaged or completely destroyed in that situation? Uh, prior to selling OxyContin, Purdue conducted a clinical trial in elderly patients with osteoarthritis to test the safety and uh, efficacy of its new wonder drug. It enrolled 133 patients. Only 63 completed the trial. Very small sample size. Again, feels pretty corrupted when only 63 complete the trial. Just over 82% of the 63 patients had some sort of adverse you know, uh, effect uh, thanks to treatment. 52 of 63 had some sort of adverse event happen during the treatment, like, I don't know, becoming addicted. Yet, Purdue concluded that the study, quote, demonstrated that controlled release oxycodone is a safe and effective uh, analgesic for the control of osteoarthritis-related pain. That's a, uh, that's an interesting interpretation. That kind of shit is why they got stuck with that massive settlement. Uh, a bunch of internal communications revealed that Purdue intentionally marketed Oxycontin for use in treating chronic pain and that through marketing research determined that they could, that they could convince a high percentage of doctors to prescribe it routinely because their studies had falsely shown that it was safe for long-term use. Looking over a bunch of their communications, it seems like they put a lot of money into studies determining how many people they could potentially sell OxyContin to, how much money they could potentially make. A lot more money went into that than it did into studies determining how badly this stuff might fuck people's lives up. And studies that did show how badly this stuff can fuck your life up were ignored or 
creatively, creatively reinterpreted. Uh, in short, Purdue lied so they could make a lot of money and trick hundreds of thousands of doctors into prescribing their highly addictive shit to hundreds of millions of people. And ta-da, an opioid epidemic has been launched. And a lot of other pharmaceutical companies start selling OxyContin equivalents because now there's a lot of new drug money to be made. And today, litigators are coming after a lot more companies than just Purdue. Thousands of cities and counties are suing drug makers and distributors in federal court. One tentative dollar amount floated earlier in October of 2019 to settle with just four of the companies, $48 billion. Back in the late 90s, when the opioid market was first heating up, more and more prescriptions are going out. More and more people are becoming addicted. And then more, you know, are later turning to street opioids when their doctors are no longer prescribing them OxyContin and similar opioids. So that's how it really kickstarts the epidemic, right? People get prescribed OxyContin and that ends up increasing the demand for heroin when they can no longer get their doctor to prescribe them OxyContin or they can no longer afford prescription medicine. And a lot of people start dying. Nearly 450,000 people died from overdoses involving some type of opioid, including prescription uh, opioids from 99 to 2019. And since 2019, the death toll has further escalated. The rise in opioid overdose, overdose deaths can be outlined in three distinct waves. The first wave began with increasing prescribing of opioids in the uh, late 80s, 1990s with overdose deaths prescri- uh, involving prescription opioids, natural and semi-synthetic opioids, and methadone really showing market increases starting around 1999. Second wave began in 2010 with rapid increases in overdose deaths specifically involving heroin. Uh, The third wave began in 2013 with significant increases in overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids, particularly those involving illicitly manufactured fentanyl, which is often combined with heroin, counterfeit pills, other drugs like cocaine, making it easy to overdose when unsuspecting users accidentally ingest it. Uh, I'll break down why fentanyl in particular is so fucking dangerous uh, here soon. Uh, Between May of 2020, April of 2021, 100,300 Americans died of opioid overdoses. Most ever reported in a 12-month span. First time that over 100,000 people died in 12 months. 28% spike in the previous year's deaths. And researchers attributed the spike primarily to fentanyl. Over 70,000 of that 100,000 uh, plus, you know, were from opioids. Over 100,000 lives lost in just one year. And there's concern it could become, you know, worse than that. Losing all these lives, other opioid-related trauma has made the opioid epidemic super expensive. Financially, it's estimated to have cost the U.S. economy over $500 billion during the period that began in the late 90s up until 2018, when this particular analysis wrapped up the research. In 2018, the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors attempted to quantify the total societal costs of opioid overdose and concluded that previous estimates have significantly underestimated the high cost of fatalities due to overdose. The council used the value of a statistical life VSL analytic method which is routinely used by federal agencies in cost-benefit analysis of regulations and policies, including health-related interventions. Uh, the VSL method considers the cost of other valuable activities in life other than work that may be related to the value of non-work-related activities, such as volunteering, family rearing, rather than only lost work productivity and earnings. And according to calculations made with this VSL approach, the true cost of the opioid epidemic to society is around $504 billion. And that as of, you know, a couple of years ago, so more now with 15% of the total from non-fatal and 85% from fatal overdoses. And I'm, I'm guessing what, at least another hundred billion dollars or so has been lost since 2018. Uh, it makes sense that the biggest contributor to the cost of the epidemic comes from overdose deaths. In 2018, every day, an average of roughly 130 people died from opioid overdoses. Most of them were in the 
uh, 25 to 55 age range, right in the middle of their prime working years and lost earning potential accounts for most of those costs. Uh, The next biggest amount comes from healthcare costs. Uh, The researchers took several large databases of insurance claims that have been scrambled to hide the identity of the patients and flagged people who had been coded as having opioid use disorder. Then the researchers calculated their overall healthcare costs, not just directly related to their addiction, but any additional costs, and compared them to similar patients without addiction. Opioid addiction is linked to other health problems like HIV and hepatitis C spread amongst injection drug users. Opioid addicts often develop health conditions like anemia, liver disease, and pulmonary heart disease. A lot of money spent treating those issues. There are also health costs for people who live in the same household as someone with an opioid use disorder. Their lives might be more complicated. Their mental and physical health can suffer as a result. Then there are the costs of infants born dependent on opioids, what's called neonatal abstinence syndrome. There's also the cost of criminal justice related to opioids, estimated at $10.9 billion, child and family assistance and education, estimated at $9 billion, and, you know, on and on and on. So many other costs uh, that the report couldn't capture, including elevated costs for patients whose opioid use disorder, disorder is undiagnosed and potential ongoing expenses for children born with neonatal abstinence syndrome as they grow up. It all adds up, you know, to a lot of lives lost, a lot of money lost as well, over half a trillion dollars and counting. Uh, To now further understand the opioid epidemic, let's figure out what kind of opioids there are, how they work, why they're addictive, how you can die from an overdose. Then we'll meet a man, Dr. Carl L. Hart, a seemingly very smart man, highly educated professor, who presents some interesting pro arguments for opioid use. Have opioids actually saved some lives in addition to taking many? Uh, Yeah, probably, as weird as that might sound. Uh, Next, we'll jump into the timeline and learn about humanity's long history with opioids, including how law enforcement and public health programs have tried to combat the current opioid climate. And finally, we'll finish up with some possible solutions going forward. So what are opioids? Well, opioids are super fucking fun, especially when you ingest them uh, via the tastiest version of them you can find on the market made by one of this uh, episode's sponsors, Whipple Chill. Whipple's new low-energy cocktail. Hey, man. Life isn't always about being so uh, up, you know? Sometimes you gotta, you gotta come down. You gotta get low. Real low. And when you want to get low, get low with one of the three new flavors of Whipple Chill. Cherry Cola Codeine. Mint chocolate morphine and blackberry black tar heroin. All are made with a patent pending FDA approved ish formula of 30% opioids, 40% whatever, whatever's in, in NyQuil, you know. 30% Valium, 25% Xanax, 30% warm milk, 2% lavender essential oil. 3% CBD cream, 14%. This lady lives down the street, calls herself Moon Goddess. Her massage lotion. 7% Kenny G sweat. 18% horse tranquilizers. 20% chamomile tea. 10% melatonin. And about a half percent of either synthetic cherry, mint chocolate, or blackberry flavors. After drinking, you know, traditional Whipple to kickstart your morning. Drink new Whipple Chill. Calm back down. Warning. 
Do not operate heavy machinery while drinking Whipple. Chill. Or drive a vehicle. Fly a plane. Captain a boat. Walk on a treadmill. Try to learn how to ride a unicycle. Stand up. Make financial decisions. Talk to loved ones. Talk to strangers. Talk to anyone. Talk and use the bathroom. Eat anything you could choke on. Eat anything at all. Make eye contact with anyone. Use your phone. Or even wear underwear that you really care about. Don't worry about you or your family getting fucked. Just come sit here on this cloud with me. Calm down. Feel like a unicorn getting hugged by a rainbow. When you drink Whipple. Chill. Edition. Huh. Nice. I mean, I got to say that's a great product idea from the Whipple people. I mean, they've cornered the market on, on energy drinks. Why not double their money? Get all their customers calmed back down. Double up on those dollars. They created the demand. Now they fuel the supply. Okay. Uh, but seriously, what are opioids? Opioids are synthetic derivatives from the opium poppy. Same plant that drugs like heroin and morphine are made from. An opioid, an opioid is given to patients to treat moderate to severe pain. When opioids bind to opioid receptors in the spinal cord, the brain is compelled to send reduced pain signals throughout the body. Many people use the term opioids and opiates synonymously, but they're actually slightly different. Uh, Opioids refer to all the natural, synthetic, or semi-synthetic chemicals that interact with opioid receptors on nerve cells in the body and brain and reduce the intensity of pain signals and feelings of pain. The class of drugs includes the illegal, uh, or this class of drugs includes the illegal drug heroin, synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, pain medications available legally by prescription such as uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone, codeine, morphine, many others. Prescription opioids are generally safe when taken for a short time and as directed by a doctor, but because they produce euphoria in addition to pain relief, they can be misused and have addiction potential. Opiates refer only to the natural opioids, such as heroin, morphine, and codeine. Opioids refer to all natural, semi-synthetic, and synthetic opioids. It's the wider category. Uh, So we'll use opioids to refer to these substances, you know, throughout the episode. Uh, Also, did you know that technically only opioids are narcotics? Even though cocaine often gets called a narcotic and under federal and state laws is classified as a narcotic, that's not technically correct. The DEA defines narcotics as drugs that relieve pain and dull the senses, and the use of the word is most commonly associated with opioid drugs from the DEA's own website. Though some people still refer to all drugs as narcotics, today narcotic refers to opium, opium derivatives, and their semi-synthetic substitutes. A more current term for these drugs with less uncertainty regarding its meaning is opioid. No mention of cocaine. Uh, I just found that interesting. Uh, Before I explain how all these opioids work, let's meet them individually. The nine most commonly abused opioids are morphine, a naturally occurring opioid, codeine, another naturally occurring opioid, and the next four are semi-synthetic, heroin, oxycodone, oxymorphone, hydrocodone, and the final three, 100% synthetic opioids. And that's buprenorphine, methadone, and uh, Whipple. Chill. Totally synthetic, but so very, very good. So very, very low. Uh, no, uh, fentanyl. I meant to say fentanyl. Uh, let's define all nine. Morphine, uh, going to start there. Morphine's found naturally in the poppy plant, commonly known as the opium poppy or the bread seed poppy. We should get to know this plant right off the bat. Uh, did you know that poppy seeds, like from a poppy seed muffin, come from the exact same plant as heroin? They do. 
And although the seeds themselves don't uh, contain opiates, they are often contaminated with morphine residuals or morphine residue during harvesting. That's why if you eat too many poppy seeds, there's a small, very small chance that you could fail a drug test for opiates. Like if they weren't cleaned properly, basically, before they got put into that sweet muffin. I've always heard that about poppy seed muffins, but never truly understood why. Uh, back to this very unique plant, the poppy, an annual herb growing to a height of about 40 inches, known scientifically by its Latin name of uh, papaver somniferum, grows wild in eastern and south southern Asia, southeastern Europe, uh, believed to have originated in the Mediterranean region. And it grows real, real well in Afghanistan. More than 80% of the world's opium supply comes from Afghanistan and has for many years now. Uh, the plant is a flowering herb with white mauve or red petals, and it bears fruit. A little seed pod, a hairless rounded capsule uh, topped with 12 to 18 radiating stigmatic rays, what's called a fluted cap. And in optimal growing conditions, you can grow enough poppy to produce about 320,000 of these little poppy fruits per year per acre. Uh, a lot also grown in Australia, actually, uh, a lot of uh, legal stuff for use in pharmaceuticals. And the opium part of this herb and its dried latex or the milky fluid uh, obtained from the fruit or seed poppy of the plant. Uh, the opium is, the, yeah, is that dried latex. I bet, I bet most of you have popped the head off a stalk of a, a, like a dandelion before. Picture that milky fluid that sometimes comes out of the stem. That is the dandelion's latex. Or if that description doesn't create an, aha, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I get what the opium part is, that, that latex, uh, you know, the visual in your head. Picture the male ejaculate. Latex is kind of like plant cum. Opium is like poppy cum. So when you're snorting, say heroin, it's almost like you're giving yourself a plant cum facial, which was, uh, that was unnecessary. Uh, let me get back to a more proper description. Opium contains a special class of naturally occurring alkaloids. Alkaloids being a class of nitrogenous, uh, nitrogenous, no, oh, whatever, nitrogenous. There's so many science words today, Jesus Christ. You have to forgive me from, I don't have a chemistry degree. Uh, or get, uh, nitrogen, ni Jesus Christ, nitro, like nitrogen with O-U-S, nitro. I fucking had it in my head earlier. You don't even have to send an email. I can look it up after the episode, but it's nitrogen-based organic compounds on, uh, of plant origin that create a pronounced physiological action on humans. So basically it fucks us up for better or for worse. Basically things shit from plants either gets us high or poisons us. Morphine is an alkaloid. Uh, so is strychnine. Not every plant substance that gets us high is an alkaloid though. Like uh, THC and marijuana, you know, that's a cannabinoid. Uh, cannabinoids are any group of closely related compounds, which include cannabinol, and the active constituents of cannabis. THC or tetrahydrocannabinol is the chemical responsible for most of marijuana's psychological effects. And it acts much like the cannabinoid chemicals made naturally by the body, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Yep, we already have weed in our bodies. Naturally occurring weed. You're, you're all fucking hippies. Every one of you. And there's some little part of you inside of your body that's, you know, playing some drums, listening to some Grateful Dead, hitting the peace pipe. Uh, cannabinoid receptors are concentrated in certain areas of the brain associated with thinking, memory, pleasure, coordination, and time perception. THC attaches to these receptors, activates them, affects a person's memory, pleasure, movements, thinking, concentration, coordination, right? And sensory and time perception. I mean, that time perception part, that's where weed gets me every time. And I like it because time slows way down for me on, uh, on weed. I love it. I'm like, oh, I'm getting some bonus life right now. I'm getting two hours for every one hour. Uh, but we're not talking about weed. We're talking about opioids. I just find all this shit fascinating. And it's interesting how weed affects the brain in a similar way to opioids, as you'll see soon. Uh, back to opiate alkaloids. The predominant opiate alkaloid, making up about 12% of you know opium, of the opium latex, a higher percentage than any other alkaloid is morphine. Morphine is the strongest, most popular opiate 
Codeine is the second most popular opium alkaloid. Uh, morphine, I should have said, is the strongest, you know, like alkaloid. Makes up about 2% of opium. Codeine does. When people, for example, smoke opium, they're ingesting a bit of morphine, codeine, and a variety of other, you know, alkaloids, opioid, in naturally occurring amounts. Smoking opium is uh, smoking dried, uh, a dried form of the poppy seed pod. Now back specifically to morphine. How is it isolated and extracted from dried opium latex? There's a few different ways now, thanks to modern science. But here's the traditional way to do it uh, when you're preparing it to be used illegally, not for pharmaceuticals, uh, the way it's been done in Afghanistan, for example, for decades. Raw opium has a very strong odor that can be detected easily by, say, customs officials. Not good when you're trying to sell it, obviously. So it gets converted into a morphine base in order to be smuggled out of the country. To create a morphine base, opium latex is added to boiling water. The raw opium dissolves into a clear brown liquid or liquid opium. Plant scrapings, other impurities float to the top. They're scooped up, tossed out. Slaked lime, slaked, S-L-A-K-E-D, aka calcium hydroxide, is then added to the liquid so that the morphine alkaloid reacts with the lime to form a new opiate solution. To be clear, this kind of lime doesn't have shit to do with fruit. Not that kind of lime. This is the kind that comes from limestone. Uh, Slaked lime has been used as a type of mortar, for example, for many centuries. The Romans made an ancient form of concrete by mixing lime with volcanic ash. And this kind of lime helps turn morphine powder into a stronger powder that can, say, hold the shape of a brick. The solution is poured through a filter to remove any impurities, such as other alkaloids that have sunk to the bottom. Concentrated ammonia then added to the solution. It's reheated. The morphine solidifies, settles at the bottom of the pot. A cloth then used to filter out the solid white chunks of morphine base. The morphine base, then wrapped into blocks, dried out in the sun. Now, those morphine bricks, that shit's ready for shipment. Uh, morphine generally uses a pain reliever. It can last anywhere from three to seven hours. For street use, it's attractive because of uh, its pain relieving properties and also the feeling of euphoria that all popular opioids give you some form of. Uh, in high enough doses, it can also make you hallucinate, believe in various delusions, and the high can last anywhere from 1.5 hours to seven hours. So that's a long high. Uh, side effects, if there are any, are typically nausea and or constipation, but are rarely severe enough to warrant stopping treatment when used medically. Uh, and if the dose is too big, you can OD. It can shut down your respiratory system. You can die. You know, going to cardiac arrest. Same is true for all the opioids on this list. Uh, recreationally, the behavioral changes associated with long-time morphine use present a uh, marked change from the way the person behaved before, right? Faking injuries, hurting oneself to get a new prescription, stealing to buy morphine, not giving a fuck about anything but morphine, ignoring friends, family, hygiene, career, etc. Now let's talk about codeine. Codeine can be extracted from opium in a similar way as morphine, and it's a long and frankly boring process unless you want to start harvesting and selling codeine or studying to become a pharmacist or drug historian or something. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty details. Uh, this alkaloid can be separated from morphine and other alkaloids in a few different ways. Uh, codeine, not as potent as morphine, typically used to treat moderate pain. Also proven to be an effective cough suppressant, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, it can also be used to uh, treat diarrhea or irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, codeine, inter interestingly, works following being broken down by the liver into morphine. Like other opioids, it's addictive. Common side effects, drowsiness, constipation. The high is, again, some euphoric feelings, milder than mo morphine. Uh, possible to hallucinate and experience delusions still, though. Uh, coating coughs became popular to ingest recreationally in the 90s. I remember this. In a form called Purple Drank. Purple Drank. It was coating cough syrup mixed with Sprite, Grape Crush, Mountain Dew, or some other soda, and then also mixed with Jolly Ranchers or another type of hard candy. 
sometimes also mixed with uh, promethazine and antihistamine or uh, dextromorphin. Oh my God, dextromethorphan. Another cough suppressant uh, in the form of Robitussin or some other equivalent. Uh, purple drink, also called dirty Sprite, purple jelly, Sizzurp, Texas tea, lean and robo tripping. I'd only heard of purple drink and robo tripping. Uh, I had some friends who would go robo tripping in the late 90s. And if they're to be believed, they said they saw all kinds of shit, said they tripped their balls off. Um, you know, they also had a lot of other drugs in their systems. Uh, once again, of course, people have died from overdoses on this and continue to die. Next up, heroin, processed morphine, smack, H, junk, China White, the beast, the horse, uh, the bear company, B-A-E-R, right? Maker of aspirin. They started the commercial production of heroin in the U.S. in 1898, marketed as a wonder drug, especially effective in treating respiratory diseases. A lot of people already suffering from consumption, tuberculosis. Soon we're also now heroin addicts, but their cough was better. Uh, as a result of a massive rise in addiction, Congress made it illegal to make, import, or sell heroin when it passed the Anti-Heroin Act, 1924. Uh, heroin in recent years shows up in three main forms, black tar, brown powder, and white powder. Each kind of heroin contains slightly different ingredients, and all are likely to have various other substances added. These can add to the drug's potency, in some cases making it even more dangerous. How long the high from heroin lasts, how quickly you feel high, as with other opioids, depends on you know how you ingest it. Heroin used by injection uh, produces a high within seconds, peaks around two hours, lasts for up to four hours or longer. Uh, but, the, but the beginning of the peak can start in just a few minutes. Uh, for people who snort it or smoke it, the effects of heroin hit you in about 10 minutes, uh, while the nodding aftermath longs, lasts as long as four to five hours. Uh, heroin hits you with a, an intense euphoric feeling that uh, sometimes like, like the peak of it will last less than 10 minutes. Over time, the intensity duration of this euphoria uh, reduced significantly. Drowsiness and a sensation of a disconnection with the world may also occur. Uh, the stages of a heroin high are somewhat unique for each person, but it usually follows the similar process of, you know, first comes a quick feeling of nausea, followed by a rush. Depending on a user's tolerance, uh, the rush may last up to 20 minutes. During this time, the user may have the sensation that his or her body is made of liquid, a heavy feeling in their extremities, and sometimes the not as nice feeling of burning hot skin with heat originating from inside your body. Uh, after the initial rush, mental functioning becomes foggy. Then the heart rate, breathing become profoundly slower, possibly to the point of being life-threatening, which then, of course, can result in coma, permanent brain damage, or death. Heroin is morphine that has undergone acetylation. And what is acetylation? It's a reaction, usually with acetic acid, or acetic acid that induces uh, or introduces in a acetyl radical into an organic compound. What does that all actually mean? I, don't, I, I fucking have no idea. Uh, really digging into some of the ways these drugs differ just led me to sources that were nothing but medical journals, where I would say 40% of the words I was reading were hard to pronounce. To explain all the medical speak would require a very long and painfully boring explanation for most people, and it would be very frustrating to hear my mouth try and deliver it about why different forms of morphine work faster and stronger than other forms. Uh, for our purposes here, just know that heroin is the street form of morphine. And after it's put through that process of acetylation, it's pain relieving, euphoric, and possible hallucinogenic effects are amplified. Uh, to make it a mixture of heroin base, aka that morphine that was processed to be smuggled out uh, you know, earlier, like you know, with the slate lime and all that, the bricks, uh, it's heated at 85 degrees Celsius, 185 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours uh, with acetic or acetic acid. During this time, the morphine dissolves 
And when cooking is completed, the mixture cools and the morphine and the acid chemically bond to form heroin. Next, water is added to the mixture to now dissolve the heroin. Sodium carbonate, a common ingredient in soaps, added to the heroin solution to create a heroin base. 2.5 pounds of sodium carbonate per pound of morphine. And a pound, 16 ounces of morphine will end up making about 11 ounces of heroin. Uh, This process basically purifies the morphine base further, makes it a stronger opiate. When injected directly into a vein, right, heroin has two to three times the effect of a similar dose of morphine, thanks to this refinement method, two to three times stronger. Uh, The heroin base then typically mixed with other substances such as sugar, starch, caffeine, quinine, uh, other opioids like fentanyl, this is another reason this shit is so fucking dangerous. You don't know who's mixing it with what. Just like with cocaine, heroin can be cut into all sorts of ways to turn a little bit of pure heroin into a lot of street heroin to greatly increase drug dealer profits. This makes me think of all these gangster movies right? I've watched where uh, a drug deal is going down, you know, and some big kingpin, kingpin buyer wants to taste the product. You know, they put a little on their tongue, maybe rubbing their gums, snort a little bit, whatever. Why do they do that? To make sure it's pure. Make sure that they're buying, you know, in this example, pure heroin and not just a bunch of fucking baking soda or something. Uh, Sometimes really horrible shit's mixed in like black shoe polish, seriously. Sometimes black tar heroin mixed with shoe polish to make it look darker and cooler and to dilute it, make it more profitable. And shoe polish, if you didn't know this for some reason, uh, not good for you. Shocking, right? Not supposed to eat shoe polish. Uh, Sometimes harmless shit is mixed in to dilute it like uh, flour, talc, powdered milk, and various sugars. Uh, when I was in Amsterdam years ago, a buddy of mine bought what he thought was Coke and it was nothing but flour. I, I always think about whoever sold it to him. What a great business model. Right? Are you kidding me? Just bag up little bits of flour, sell it to American tourists, call it cocaine or heroin, whatever they're looking for. Sell a gram of flour to people already fucking hammered drunk. They don't know what they're doing. You know, sell it to them for up to 150 bucks, make about 149 bucks a pop. That's a solid markup. Uh, next up, oxycodone. The first truly synthetic lab-created opioid, originally made, still made, for a medical purpose. All the rest of these opioids will be lab-born. Oxycontin, just a brand name for oxycodone. Uh, Oxycodone, highly addictive, made by artificially modifying uh, thebane, another one of those alkaloids found in opium, right? A cousin of morphine and codeine. And it is fucking crazy that one random flower has so much shit inside its little fruit that can fuck you up in so many different ways, right? And, you know, and all the little seeds right next to all these uh, opium alkaloids, seeds, you know, covered in that latex, they're actually not bad for us at all. Don't fuck us up one bit. Poppy seeds, uh, rich in fiber, healthy fats, several micronutrients, uh, an excellent source of manganese. Manganese is great. Helps the body form connective tissue, bones, blood clotting factors, sex hormones. Plays a role in fat and carbohydrate metabolism, calcium absorption, blood sugar regulation. Manganese also necessary for normal brain and nerve function. How much shit is in one plant? Like the opium poppy was created by ancient wizards or witches or something. Did Lucifina make it? Or maybe at least help make it. I wouldn't doubt it. It's a magic whipped up by her and Nimrod. Uh, Back to Thebane now, another alkaloid. Uh, Thebane, very chemically similar to both morphine and codeine. Makes sense. Uh, Interestingly, uh, though, has stimulatory rather than depressant effects. So going to give you a lot of the same euphoria and pain-relieving properties. You know, it's also found in both poppy pods and the stalks beneath them but not going to make you sleepy, right? Same high, more alert. Uh, Like other opioid analgesics, oxycodone tends to induce feelings of euphoria, relaxation, reduced anxiety, and occasional users. The most common side effects, constipation, feeling sick, and for some reason, with some people, they get unlucky and they do feel sleepy. 
Uh, you can ingest it like other opioids in a variety of ways. You can crush it. You can snort it. You can shove it up your ass via suppository, heat it up, shoot it in your veins, smoke it, rub the powder on your gums, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the U.S. oxycodone is approved only for use by mouth. Available as either a tablet or as an oral liquid solution. Uh, most commonly, oxycodone available as a controlled release tablet intended to be taken every 12 hours and used uh, you know, medically for pain management. Now up, oxymorphone. While oxycodone is generally prescribed for moderate pain, oxymorphone for more potent and more severe pain, uh, typically like post-surgical pain. It's either uh, injected via a needle or in pill form and uh, in either in immediate release form or extended release form. And uh, extended release is usually a tablet. Uh, brand names are Nemorphin, Opana, among others. Started being used back in 1959. And in 2017, the FDA actually asked manufacturers to then remove it from the U.S. medical market due to this opioid epidemic, and they have complied. Also derived from the bane, from the bane, like OxyContin, but synthesized to be twice as strong. So it's the Whipple uh, version of OxyContin. Now for another Odone. Uh, rhymes with, uh, uh, sorry, uh, hydrocodone. Oh my God, I'm an idiot. I read my own note there, started to. <laughs> Just so I wouldn't say like, uh, now for another Odin. Like the uh, Norse god, I wrote Odone and I wrote rhymes with cone. Good note that I'm re- uh, hydrocodone. Like codeine, hydrocodone is used as a pain reliever and as a cough suppressant. It's often combined with acetaminophen. Uh, why can I say that word easily? And some of the other ones just escaped me. Uh, Tylenol is a popular example of uh, acetaminophen, or it's mixed with an ibuprofen. Advil is a popular form of ibuprofen. Jesus Christ, I jinxed myself. Ibuprofen, uh, generally sold in pill form to treat moderate pain, about half as strong as OxyContin. Uh, first patented in 1923, most commonly prescribed in the U.S. by far. In 2010, 99% of all prescribed hydrocodone was prescribed in the U.S. We fucking love us some hydrocodone. Or we did. Uh, it's derived from codeine to be a stronger form uh, of codeine. Oh, no, wait. We do still have this one. So I got first in my mind for a second. I got uh, this oxymorphone. Oh, no, it is the one that's no longer uh, they all sound so similar. This is the one that is no longer sold. Um, yeah, it's derived from codeine to be a stronger form of, excuse me, codeine to be a stronger form of codeine compared to morphine, like Oxycontin, about half as strong. Uh, Vicodin, a popular form of hydrocodone, which is a hydrocodone acetophetamine, acetamet, Jesus Christ, acetamethamine combination. Uh, I took some Vicodin after back surgery in my late 20s and man, did that shit make me feel good. Not a care in the world with enough Vicodin in my system. I didn't know it was narcotic. I just knew that I really liked it. I immediately understood why some people abuse prescription pills. I remember after just one round of those pills thinking like, oh, I could get used to this. Whatever problems, you know, I felt like I was having at the time when I had enough Vicodin in my system, like, oh, they're no longer problems. Uh, only half as strong as Oxycontin. And that's scary. Never been a big pill guy, man. Uh, Vicodin is the only prescription I've ever abused recreationally. It scared me because I generally don't feel like uh, I have a real addictive personality. Don't worry about getting hooked on something. But with Vicodin, I saw myself getting, you know, real hooked real quick if I wasn't careful. And Oxycontin, more addictive. Uh, three more starting with buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. Uh, these last three, 100% lab-made. They are opioids that are not derived from any form of opium. Scientists who studied morphine, codeine, thebane, other alkaloids thought, well, this shit's really strong. How can we make it so much stronger? And they made this stuff. Uh, shit that really helps some people absolutely annihilates others. Their opioid moniker comes from the fact that despite not being derived from opium, 
Uh, they do bind with opioid receptors in the brain, just as opioids derived from opium do. How they're made is a long process involving numerous chemical agents and lots of big words known only primarily to a small slice of the medical field. Uh, buprenorphine used to treat, again, pain, also to treat opioid use disorder, which means it's an opioid sometimes used by people with withdrawals as they try to wean themselves off of an opioid addiction. Uh, approved for clinical use in October 2002 by the FDA. And this shit, yeah, this shit is fucking strong. Anywhere from 20 to 50 times more potent than morphine, depending on how it's administered. Uh, but not as addictive. And interestingly, not as dangerous. There's a lower risk for overdose with it based on how it binds to opioid receptors. We'll get into that uh, soon. Uh, Bunephrine can suppress breathing like other opioids, but has a, a ceiling effect in it that limits the danger of overdose even as more is consumed. Uh, that effect diminishes, though, if the drug is taken with tranquilizers or alcohol, and then death can result. And it is often used in conjunction with other drugs. Recreationally, it often shows up on the street as Suboxone. Uh, suboxone is a mixture of Buneferine and Naloxone. Naloxone is a fucking miracle drug. It's administered on its own via a nasal spray, nasal spray or intravenously, used to rapidly reverse an opioid overdose. It is an opioid antagonist. Uh, naloxone blocks the effects of the opioid medication buneferine. And when mixed with buneferine, suboxone floods your dopamine receptors. Makes you feel real good. Shows up in pill form and the pills are known on the street uh, commonly as stop signs, boop, sobos, subbies, or oranges. Uh, the feelings of getting high, similar to other opioids, usually just uh, not as intense. Sometimes users crush, crush the pills, snort them for rapid introduction into the uh, bloodstream, a little bit more intensity. Its use is not real widespread because the high, again, just not as intense as a lot of other opioids, but it does have, you know, some appeal because it's a lot cheaper than most other opioids. And this is from a 2007 Baltimore Sun article. Irvin Fegan, a 36-year-old recovering heroin addict from West Baltimore, first brought or uh, first bought Suboxone on city streets last year for about five bucks a pill. He sought it, he sought it to make it through the rough spots that arose when he couldn't buy heroin. These days, I couldn't get $10 or $20 for heroin, or the days, excuse me, the days I couldn't get $10 or $20 for heroin, I'd buy boop, Fegan said. Two more. Okay, first up, methadone. Methadone, sold under the brand names uh, Dilophine and Methadose, is another opioid used like Buneferine for both pain management and opioid addiction treatment. First approved by the FDA in 1947. Uh, rarely snorted or shot up, usually taken orally via a pill, a wafer, or a liquid solution. And like buneferine, it, uh, of course, gets used rec recreationally. Uh, emergency room visits related to non-medical use of methadone rose 73% from 2004 to 2008. Under most circumstances, a person will experience pain relief from about four to eight hours, but not the euphoria of other opioids. Methadone blocks the effects that make one feel high from other more popular opioids like heroin, morphine, hydrocodone, oxycodone. Uh, but it can definitely still make you feel real chill and real good. No pain. Even though methadone can be used to get you off, say, heroin, you can also then get addicted to methadone. And the side effects can be wide-ranging and fucking insane. Uh, many of these side effects also apply to the other drugs on this list. It's just too repetitive to list them out every time. But check out this fucking nightmare. Adverse effects of methadone can include, and this is just a partial list, constipation, heat intolerance, dizziness, weakness, exhaustion, insomnia, nausea, vomiting, low blood pressure, headaches, chest pain, abnormal heart rhythms, weight gain, memory loss, difficulty urinating, 
swelling of the hands, arms, feet, and legs, blurred vision, decreased libido, impotence. What is big deal? It happened to many guys. Morphin, that's not the problem. Difficulty in reaching orgasm. Then, if you're dealing with some of this shit and you stop taking methadone, <laughs> now you can deal with a variety of horrific withdrawal symptoms. They can include, but are not limited to, spontaneous orgasm. Ain't that a bitch? Go from not being able to come to coming randomly. That's awesome. Lightheadedness, more nausea, vomiting, more diarrhea now, fever, sweating, chills, tremors, severe body aches, increased heart rate, high blood pressure that can lead to a stroke, elevated pain sensitivity, suicidal ideation, depression, delirium, auditory, visual, even olfactory hallucinations. Yep, you can start seeing, hearing, and smelling shit that's not real. You can also experience feelings of anxiety, agitation, paranoia, panic, apathy, delusional thoughts, even anorexia. So fuck yeah, bro. Uh, Opioids can sometimes really help you, but holy shit, can they rock your fucking world. Last one, really bad boy, and currently the one most people believe to be the most dangerous opioid of them all, I think it's not even a close race, is fentanyl. Fentanyl is 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine, about 50 times stronger than heroin. Sweet Jesus. Uh, It was first approved for medical use in the United States in 1968 after Satan himself made it in Hell's Laboratory. No, uh, Janssen Pharmaceutica, a Belgian company, made it in 1959. That company later bought out by Johnson & Johnson. And it was made to be administered as a powerful pain reliever and as an anesthetic. It numbs your body so you can't feel anything and can be uh, operated on. Super popular as spinal anesthesia. The most popular drug of that kind in the U.S., It acts fast within five to 10 minutes and lasts from one to two hours. It's also a popular epidural for childbirth. And if you moms might've had fentanyl, not even know it. It has a lot of useful purposes. Combat medics use it or have used it or did use it, excuse me, in Afghanistan to treat military uh, personnel injured, for example, in IED blasts. Popular because it acts fast and is super strong. Uh, Fentanyl is used mostly in cancer patients or those suffering from terrible chronic pain. And it can shut down your respiratory system like other opioids. But because it's so fucking strong, it can do it really uh, fast in really teeny tiny amounts. Just two milligrams is a fatal dose for most people who have not built up a tolerance, uh, you know, when injected intravenously. That amount is so small. There's a pick online of that much fentanyl powder next to a penny. And it's not enough to even cover the year the penny was made in. It's like one shake uh, of salt's worth of powder. To illustrate how stupid strong this shit is, an Ohio police officer in 2017 pulled over two guys in a traffic stop. Uh, they tried stomping out some fentanyl, right? They had uh, they were trying to destroy evidence of a narcotic in their car. They had it on the floorboards, just stomping it down there, you know, trying to make it settle in, blend into the dirt down there. And the fucking dust sent into the air caused this officer to OD in minutes. He started slurring his words less than 60 seconds after talking to the suspects. Right, And he's outside the car, just talking to him through an open window. Started having trouble breathing less than a minute after that. Dude would have died if EMTs hadn't shown up and given him uh, the nasal spray Narcan, aka naloxone. Excuse me, that opioid antagonist we learned about a bit uh, earlier. That drug that attaches to opioid receptors and blocks and reverses opioid effects and does it quickly. Again, pretty miraculous bit of modern chemistry. Um, Yeah, so this thing is so, so powerful and it's wicked addictive, more addictive than heroin the most powerful and powerfully addictive opioid out on the market. So why does anyone fuck around with fentanyl? Who needs something so much stronger than heroin? Well, most people who take it, most people who die of a fentanyl overdose, 
don't even know that they've taken it. It was snuck in. It was cut in and mixed with whatever else they were using because of money. This stuff is made in a lab. It's not harvested from poppy fields and it's way cheaper to produce. In 2019, a kilo of heroin cost around $50,000, whereas a kilo of fentanyl cost around $3,000. So it's, it's, it's like heroin if heroin was way stronger and on sale for 94% off. And because it's so much cheaper, so much more powerful, uh, so addictive, shady-ass street drug manufacturers will cut other drugs down with fentanyl, pressing it into pills, uh, mixing it into powders, et cetera. Street-level dealers often don't even know that the shit they're selling has been mixed, uh, you know, uh, the fentanyl's been mixed into heroin, cocaine, Xanax, Oxycontin, et cetera. It'll even sometimes get mixed in with meth. So one of the fucking main problems with street drugs is that you often have no clue what you're actually getting. And neither does your dealer in many cases. Uh, this drug is pretty new as far as common recreational use goes. It's only uh, been hitting the streets the past few years. Before that, only available in a medical setting. Uh, because it's led to another huge spike in overdoses, uh, fentanyl test strips can now be commonly bought. You can get them on Amazon, uh, used to test for the presence of fentanyl in injectable drugs, powders, and pills. Rates of overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids other than methadone, which include fentanyl and fentanyl analogs, increased over 16% from 2018 to 2019. Overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids nearly 12 times higher in 2019 than in 2013, thanks almost entirely to fentanyl. So how do all these opioids actually work? Like exactly why do they make us feel high? One word, magic. All right, Uh, let's move on to the next section. Let's get into that time suck timeline now and go over the history of the relationship between us meat sacks and opioids. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Come on, JK, gosh dang, that'd be shitty. For real though, how do opioids work? Uh, We meat sacks are born with natural opioid receptors throughout our bodies. Mainly these receptors are clustered in the brain, spinal cord, and throughout our uh, gastrointestinal tracts. Opioid receptors are part of our endogenous opioid system, which is the body's internal system for regulating pain, reward, and addictive behaviors. And this system regulates feelings of pleasure, relief, and moods. Uh, Studies have even shown they can affect feelings of attachment or basically love. So if your endogenous opioid system is sufficiently fucked up from, say, abusing opioids over a long period of time, you essentially cannot feel love anymore. Like, how terrible is that? You won't feel attached to your partner, family, friends, or I'm sorry, family, friends, family, friends, uh, whatever. And, and also by manipulating this system, the feeling of love can be 100% manufactured, right? Get high enough and you can truly feel like you love someone, like you're really attached to someone, a person you otherwise might not give a fuck about. It's crazy. Certain neurochemicals naturally produced in our brains will bind these opioid receptors in response to various situations, moods, interactions, et cetera. And these neurochemicals are responsible for, as I just went over, feelings of pleasure, pain, well-being, etc. The brain's naturally produced neurotransmitters, such as endorphins, uh, also known to decrease pain, which can make you feel great, right? And even prevent some symptoms of depression. Also importantly to how opioids can kill you, these neurotransmitters help regulate respiration. They help calm you down, which is good, but calming you down can also involve slowing down your breathing, which can be real bad relax, you're breathing too much and you stop breathing altogether and you die. Uh, Coming back to feeling good, opioids are appealing because you can uh, trick your body into releasing more endorphins than it would 
ever do naturally on its own. Uh, and we'll get into cardiac rest is another way in a second this stuff can kill you. Uh, you can experience feelings of pleasure that are truly impossible to replicate naturally with this stuff. Sorry, people who like to throw out cliches like, I'm high on life. Good for you. Truly glad that you feel great naturally, but you do not feel as good as you would if you were high on heroin or some other opioid. It's just not possible. That's part of their appeal. They can make you feel better than it's possible to feel like without them. In its natural state, the brain just does not ever produce large amounts of these neurochemicals. For example, if you were to break you know, your arm, your brain would produce pain-relieving neurotransmitters to treat that pain, but not enough to have your arm not hurt at all. It would still hurt, it would still hurt quite a bit. With enough non-natural opioids in your system flooding your opioid receptors, you don't give a fuck about your arm, right? If you could somehow, you know, uh, you know, stay awake while you're doing it, you know, you might be able to try and just cut your arm off. You could probably do it if you didn't bleed to death. You just cut your arm off and be like, nah, I'm fine. Feels, feels great. Uh, synthetic opioid uh, drugs, opiates, and opium will attach to opioid receptors, flooding the brain and body with lots and lots of extra endorphins and also additional dopamine that produces extreme highs and blocks feelings of pain. A dopamine, similar to endorphins, but not an endorphin. It's a neurotransmitter. A chemical released by neurons, aka nerve cells, to send signals to other nerve cells. It's a mood-boosting neurotransmitter released after you reach a goal. Part of the reward circuit in your brain that helps to motivate you towards completing more tasks. Right? And a higher amount uh, of endorphins being flooded into your system typically leads to more dopamine production. Endof endorphins and dopamine are like coworkers. Uh, to help explain how endorphins and dopamine work together, Say you're an idiot and you decide to torture yourself by doing something really fucking stupid like running a marathon. JK, kind of. I don't actually think it's stupid. I just don't know how the hell you runners do it. But you might feel, you know, uh, motivated to participate in a marathon because of your dopamine reward system, which as you actually train is further reinforced by the endorphins that are released during the actual act of participating in the running. Then when you complete the marathon, your dopamine reward system rewards you big time with a big boost of good for you. You did it. Happy chemicals. Right? It's that special feeling of accomplishment that's powered by dopamine. In the marathon example, endorphins are the quicker acting feelings, the runner's high you experience during the marathon, while dopamine is the long acting afterglow, the euphoric feeling of immense satisfaction once you cross the finish line. Now, what if you could get all those feelings, not run at all, but instead by popping a pill or snorting some rails or shooting into a vein, et cetera. That is part of the appeal of opioids. And what if you could feel like you just completed a hundred marathons in world fucking record time, back to back to back to back to back, even though you can't run a full block in real life if your life depended on it. That's how the appeal of these, of these drugs. Again, when someone takes opioids, the chemicals in the drugs attached to the receptors cause the receptors to go into overdrive. Opioids mimic the brain's naturally occurring opioids, but to a much more extreme degree. Our brains and bodies, they can't tell if the opioids they're primed to receive and respond to are natural or synthetic. A drug like heroin creates a tidal wave in the reward circuits of our brains. On the inside, you feel like a true master of the universe. Like you're being, as one heroin user said, hugged by Jesus. No wonder they're addictive. Anyone to experience that, right? Why wouldn't you want to experience that again? Let's look further now at why they're addictive. Our dopamine-based reward system drives us to repeat natural things we enjoy or need to do to survive, like eating when we're hungry. Also, our brains create lasting records or memories that associate good feelings with the circumstances and environment in which they occur. These memories called conditioned associations often lead us to crave the drug that made us feel so good. The brain's response to opioids and the surges in dopamine they cause can also rewire circuits in the brain where essentially animals get in signals that say, this is good, repeat it. Come on, more, more heroin. These memories make it harder to stay away from using again when the abuser re-encounters the people places, uh, the smells, the sounds, et cetera, associated with previous usage. 
From a clinical standpoint, opioid withdrawal is the most powerful factor driving opioid dependence. Repeated exposure to escalating dosages of opioids alter the brain so that it functions more or less normally when the drugs are present and then abnormally when they're not. How fucked is that? Opioid tolerance occurs because the brain cells that have opioid receptors on them gradually become less responsive to opioid stimulation. More opioid is now needed to produce pleasure comparable to that provided in previous drug-taking episodes. Pretty soon, your natural opioid levels become so low thanks to opioid tolerance, thanks to, you know, your brain's chemistry getting all fucked up, that there are now not enough opioids naturally present in your system to suppress certain brain activity that can lead to jitters, anxiety, muscle cramps, diarrhea, whole bunch of other nastiness like the withdrawal symptoms I talked about earlier. Now you're going into withdrawal. How terrible. Now you feel way less happy normally than you did before you started taking opioids, right? You feel way more pain than you did before you started taking opioids. And you probably started taking opioids because you weren't happy and felt pain in the first fucking place. Now you get sick if you don't get high. And even when you do get high, the high, not as good as it was at first because your opioid receptors are all fucking jaded and bitter. Uh, It's like the difference between being excited about music the first time, right? When you really start to discover, you know, bands for yourself and how someone feels about music after they've worked in a record shop for 25 fucking years. That's the difference between like the first heroin hit and maybe, you know, the uh, 300th. You know, your brain has gone from that first high of like, holy shit. Oh my God, this is the best. I didn't know that sound could feel so good. It's like an ear orgasm that feels like it's going to last forever. But then 25 years later or a hundred opiate highs in, your brain is like, yeah, yeah, fuck, whatever. Every single band you just mentioned has ripped off both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, hacks, they ripped off Buddy Holly and Elvis. And those motherfuckers ripped off Little Richard and Chuck Berry. No one makes original music, kid. Why would they? Stupid young fucks like you consistently reward mediocrity. Now get out of my store and eat a bag of dicks. I'm closing early. I hate music almost as much as I hate stupid customers like yourself. Right? And that, that's, that's like the level you're reaching way in. How evil that these things take you to the highest of highs once. Then you just chase that dragon until you quit or you die trying. Let's talk a little more now about how they can kill you. How they can stop your breathing in an overdose and also kill you in other related ways. Uh, Opioids impact many different uh, parts of the brain and body, and not just, you know, feelings of euphoria and pain management. They affect the brainstem, which control things like respiratory function and cardiac rates. Opioids taken in large amounts can interfere with receptors between the brain and the lungs, also the heart, uh, causing the heart rate to slow down or even stop. As breathing slows, oxygen levels fall, which may trigger abnormal heart rhythms. Lips, fingernails begin to turn blue, signaling a lack of oxygen. In some cases, this can lead to cardiac arrests. Your heart uh, just is not getting the right signals from your brain to keep pumping. Opioid overdoses can also cause respiratory depression, which slows a person's breathing sometimes to the point of not breathing. An opioid overdose can also cause pulmonary uh, edema, a fluid leak that fills up the air spaces of the lungs. That fluid can cause foaming at the mouth because the gag reflex also suppressed by the opioid's effects The person may be unable to swallow or spit, which can lead to choking. Vomiting as a result of an overdose can lead to aspiration, you know, which can lead to choking. You can just choke on your own vomit. In an overdose, your body is unable to handle the drug and your breathing slows or stops. Yeah, during an overdose, a lot of terrible shit can go wrong with your body. Veins can collapse. A person's bloodstream can become filled with opioids, which can suppress normal blood flow throughout the body. When too many opioids enter the brain, oxygen flow becomes limited. Permanent brain damage can occur within only four minutes of oxygen deprivation. 
Opioid overdose can uh, also cause seizures, which can further damage the brain. Permanent brain damage can leave people paralyzed, unable to speak. Uh, your body's getting the wrong messages, right? Slow everything down more, further. Slow the heart rate. Slow the breathing. Relax the neck more until you're gone. Opioid abuse can also damage your heart and increase your risk of having cardiac arrest long after you've quit taking them. So maybe don't fuck around with opioids. I'm pretty loosey-goosey with a lot of drugs, but these fuckers have always scared me. But they don't scare everyone. Let's now look at a very different perspective on all this. Let's hear from uh, some people whose lives have not been ruined by long, long-term opioid use and recreational use. People who believe that opioids have only enhanced their lives. Uh, mostly here from one person, but also a little bit from a few others, historically. Uh, in his book, Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear, tenured professor at Columbia University, neurology researcher Carl L. Hart, claims that drug use, opiate use in particular, not as dangerous as we may think. I did order that book so I can read the whole thing someday when I have more free time. A very well-reviewed book. This guy, a noted academic, currently a psychology department chairperson at Columbia University, a neuroscientist specializing in drug abuse and drug addiction. And Hart has taken a controversial perspective on opiates, made even more controversial by the fact that Hart himself is a practicing opioid user. In the prologue, he writes, I am now entering my fifth year as a regular heroin user. He couldn't imagine using heroin growing up or any other hard drugs. Uh, he wrote that while growing up in hard circumstances in Miami, Hart bought into the widespread belief that smoking crack is like putting a gun in your mouth and pulling the trigger, as one PSA he saw put it. He believed that many of the social ills he saw growing up in low income in a low-income neighborhood uh, was due to the pervasiveness and addictiveness of drugs. And then in 1986, Hart listened in disbelief as James Baldwin, his intellectual hero, argued for the legalization of drugs. Baldwin thought that the only effect of the then-recently-passed Anti-Drug Abuse Act would be the incarceration of poor and marginalized people and not the halt of drug use. He was right. Uh, The Anti-Drug Abuse Act passed in 1986 by the Reagan administration changed the system of federal supervised uh, release from a rehabilitative system into a punitive system. Hart, when he was a younger man in 1986, he didn't agree with Baldwin. He thought drug addicts and low-level dealers should be put into prison, do what's necessary to stop the spread of destructive narcotics. But as he came to research neurology later and became a drug user himself, he started to push back on the idea that drugs are inherently evil, the destroyers of people and neighborhoods. Hart studied the neurochemistry of different drugs for years, including crack cocaine, meth, and opioids. And he summarized his research in a very interesting way. He said, I discovered that the predominant effects produced by the drugs discussed in this book are positive. It didn't matter whether the drug in question was cannabis, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, or psilocybin. The positive effects Hart cites include greater empathy, altruism, gratitude, and sense of purpose. For Hart personally, coming home and smoking heroin at the end of the day helps him to suspend the perpetual preparation for battle that goes on in my head. He doesn't think from an anecdotal perspective or from a scientific perspective that drugs uh, aren't evil. He points out that if we're going to start calling some drugs or the drugs are evil, uh, he points out that if uh, we're going to start calling some drugs bad and some drugs good, we should probably look at acetaminophen, aka Tylenol, which is the number one cause of liver damage in the U.S., Uh, He also pushes back on the idea that drugs harm the brain. For example, Hart did a deep investigation into a study conducted in 2014 by researchers at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Northwestern University, which claimed to find through MRI evidence that marijuana use damages young people's brains. In the study, the researchers compared brain sizes of 20 cannabis users with 20 control participants by scanning the brain of each participant once. The result was that 
The part of the brain belonging to the cannabis users was on average slightly larger than the corresponding part in the non-cannabis users and not in a good way, uh, abnormal enlargement. But Hart points out that these people were only scanned once, meaning those brain differences could have been just been there since birth. Just like people are taller or shorter than the average person, so some people have bigger, smaller sections of their brains. The second aspect of the study was that cannabis users also reported using tobacco and alcohol. And since there wasn't a control group that consumed cannabis, but no tobacco and no alcohol, it couldn't be proven that cannabis was responsible for the brain difference and not alcohol or tobacco. The third thing that Hart stresses about the study is that it didn't include behavioral or cognitive testing, just measurements about relative brain or relative brain size. He says it's highly likely that if both groups were given tests that measured complex learning or memory, they would have performed equally well or equally poorly. Basically, he's saying that it doesn't mean uh, it's worse if your brain is working uh, properly. You know, sorry. Basically, he's saying that bigger doesn't mean worse if the brain is working properly based on testing cognitive performance. Uh, even more troubling for Hart with this study than the erroneous conclusions he feels the scientists drew was the way the media handled the findings. Headlines in the Washington Post and the New York Times proclaimed, even casually smoking marijuana can change your brain, study finds, and recreational pot use harmful to young people's brains. So, you know, they had a knee-jerk, overly emotional reaction to the story, possibly. Possibly sensationalized. Weird. Uh, we'll get back to media bias in a second. Uh, first, a little more about Hart's position. It's important to note that Hart's argument does not deal with addiction. He emphasizes that he's talking about drug use for grownups, by which he means people who can still do their jobs, meet their obligations to their families and communities, and don't do damage to their overall health as a side effect of their drug use. Hart cites a figure that 70% or more of drug users, whether they use alcohol, cocaine, prescription medicine, other drugs, do not meet the criteria for drug addiction. He writes about how research shows repeatedly that serious negative issues only affect 10 to 30% of those who even use the most stigmatized drugs, such as, you know, opioids or methamphetamines. According to Hart's argument, this is a problem not only because the issue of addiction itself may be overblown, but also because it becomes all we can talk about when we talk about drug use, making drug use seem uh, in every instance like a huge problem. This, he says, you know, a media bias has affected the opioid crisis in a big way. He writes, Recreational drug use is an activity engaged in by millions of closeted adults around the globe. Media coverage of the current so-called opioid crisis is but one clear example of the pervasive spread of misinformation about drugs and the people who partake of them. This type of coverage has made it damn near impossible for rational adults to acknowledge publicly their recreational opioid use. He fights against the media a lot with this perspective. He writes that stories about the opioid crisis sell everything from newspapers to documentary films and without drug law violators to punish, a tremendous amount of people would be unemployed, meaning everyone from prosecutors to journalists to prison wardens. He also thinks the way deaths are reported, often incorrectly in his opinion, has led us to thinking the opioid epidemic is not, um, is, you know, like, has led us to think it's, you know, it's, it's worse than it is. For instance, just because the media may report a certain number of opioid-related deaths, that doesn't mean that people did for sure die thanks to opioids. For example, in the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention collect mortality data from death certificates which contain the cause of the person's death. The certificates themselves are filled out by thousands of different individuals across the country, with each date determining its own standards and requirements for individuals conducting investigations into cause of death. As a result, death investigators vary widely in terms of how they're trained, how much experience they have. Uh, medical examiners, for example, are physicians with special training in forensic pathology, whereas coroners are not required to have any medical training, except in a handful of states. Coroners are elicited by the voting public, which means any eligible voter can become a coroner regardless of their knowledge in most states. 
Uh, these different standards can and do produce con- uh, can and do produce considerable variation in the collection and reporting of cause of death data, including drug overdoses. Adding to this is the variety of circumstances surrounding opioid-related deaths. In most cases, Hart says, more than one substance is found in the body of the deceased and concentrations of drugs are not determined, making it very difficult, if not impossible, to attribute the death to one single drug. So when the media claims that so-and-so, you know, uh, died of a drug overdose and such-and-such drug caused the death, that's not necessarily the case. If it's alcohol and fentanyl, is it alcohol? Is it fentanyl? Is it, you know, both? Just one? Uh, related point is that the fatal overdoses that involve multiple drugs in an individual death can be counted more than once. If the body contains three drugs, for example, three separate overdoses can be reported. The alternative death toll then overstates the total death toll and hinders the public's ability to get an accurate picture of what's actually going on. I didn't know that could be done, actually, with death reporting. Uh, a recent report uh, published in the Journal of Science reveals even more problems with the current systems of tracking fatal overdoses. In about three quarters of the deaths, no drug is listed on the death certificate. I'm sorry, in about a quarter, excuse me, of the deaths, no drug is listed on the death certificate. And in many jurisdictions, coroners have the ability to test for some drugs, but not for others. Even when they do have the ability to test for a wide range of drugs, they can be motivated to test for a specific set by media attention to a particular set of drugs, as well as their own beliefs about which drugs are the most dangerous. So it can all get pretty subjective. But the presence of fentanyl can be tested for, uh, you know, can be tested for easily in someone who has died. And it has shown up more and more in recent years in deaths listed as overdoses. So how can that be incorrect reporting? Uh, Regarding fentanyl, Hart says that the problem is the same as with the people who take multiple drugs at the same time. Not that the issue is drug consumption, but it's more ignorance. That with better public health campaigns, more openness about recreational drug use, which drugs not to mix together, people would know what not drugs, or what drugs they should not mix. They would test them more. Uh, they would have more opioid antagonists on hand, like naloxone, that miracle drug that you know can stop an overdose. I mean, currently you need a prescription for that, but why? Why not make that so much more widely available so people can help friends not OD? Hart doesn't say that opioids and other drugs are harmless. He just argues that if they were legal, if they were less taboo, uh, we could learn more about them. If education was better, if less money was directed at incarceration and more at rehabilitation, society would be better. Statistically, less overdose deaths, less drug-related crime, actually less overall economic cost to society. And I've, already, and I've already made this argument as well. Back in Suck 239 and El Chapo, the Sinaloa cartel and the war on drugs, right? Took a look at Portugal, a country with the most relaxed drug laws in Europe, if not the world today, examined its crime and overdose rates and found out they're better than ours. Not sure I would agree with Hart on opioids specifically being a, a good thing to recreationally, recreationally use. However, I've, I've never given them a real chance. And probably won't. Uh, definitely never given, uh, you know, uh, heroin uh, chance or fentanyl. I don't think I will. Hart is not the only successful person to be claiming, uh, to claim though, being a functioning opiate user. Famous jazz singer, Billie Holiday once said, heroin not only kept me alive, but it also kept me from killing. Fucking love that quote. Holiday also died from cirrhosis of the liver at the age of 44, brought on by alcohol abuse though. Maybe not the best example of drugs are fine. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, one of Roman, uh, the Roman empire's greatest emperors, famous for his book, Meditations, which continues to inspire modern leaders. Um, he was a opioid user or opiate user, never physically a strong man. However, being uh, emperor of Rome, Marcus was expected to lead his army because of his frailness. He was often sick from various ailments. The cold bothered him a lot. He could barely eat during the daytime, said to only eat at night, uh, you know, uh, eat then, he would eat then very little. To combat his kind of frailty, Royal uh, Marcus's physician, Galen, prescribed a medicine called uh, thoreic. And it apparently worked because 
Aurelius could endure the rigors of war as a result when he was taking it. Uh, the drug that he received was opium. According to records by Galen, Aurelius uh, couldn't take the drug in the daytime because it made him too drowsy, but he took it at night, every night, because he couldn't sleep without it. He couldn't have been hopelessly addicted, though, to opium because he did manage to write meditations during this time. And there are more famous and productive folks who have used uh, opium. Samuel Johnson, one of the most important men in English history. Johnson effectively established the English language that we have today by writing a dictionary of the English language. Also the subject of what has been described as the most important biography in English history, Life of Samuel Johnson. While most people don't remember him today, without Johnson's contribution to English, the world would be very different. And according to a friend of Johnson's, he used opium in great quantities. After 1765, when he would have been in his mid-50s, Johnson regularly took opium to get relaxation of the breast, as he called it. He preferred uh, a mixture of the drug where he mixed uh, marshmallow <laughs> with poppy. All right. This mixture enabled him to take large amounts, sometimes as much as three grains by his own account, which would be about 200 milligrams. That's, that's a fucking lot. He used the drug for almost 30 years until his death in 1784. And there are other examples, you know, Florence Nightingale, Charles Dickens, Benjamin Franklin, all those people used opium. Up for debate whether they could be called uh, healthy opium users or functioning addicts, but none of them died of an opioid overdose. Many of them, you know, lived until advanced ages. Of course, there's also, you know, many famous people who died young of opioid overdoses, like Sid Vicious at the Sex, Pistol, uh, Sex Pistols. Heroin overdose at just 21. Actor River Phoenix dead at 23 from overdosing on a dangerous mixture of cocaine and heroin, a speedball. Doors singer Jim Morrison dead at 27. No official autopsy conducted, but strongly believed to have died of a heroin overdose. Singer Janis Joplin, uh, Janis Joplin dead at 27 of heroin. Comedic actor John Belushi dead at 33. Another speedball death, more cocaine and heroin. Chris Farley dead at 33 from speedball death, uh, speedball overdose. Actor Philip Seymour Hoffman dead at 46. Uh, heroin, cocaine, meth, and more found in his system. Actor Michael K. Williams, Omar from The Wire, Chalky White from Boardwalk Empire, dead at 54 from an overdose on heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl. And there's many other names. Hart would say that many of these people were battling mental illnesses of some kind, though. And he does not consider using drugs to essentially treat mental illness to be responsible drug use or advisable. What if, again, less money went into nonviolent offender incarceration? What if more money went into drug rehab, education, mental illness treatment, if more people were getting the mental health care they needed, if there was less stigma about mental illness and narcotic use, if more OD prevention medication was available, would these deaths have occurred? Is Hart correct? His broader ethical argument is that the U.S. drug policies have done more harm than good and have prevented people from being educated about drug use, leading to a lot of avoidable deaths. He also thinks, based on the idea set out in the Declaration of Independence, that people in America should be free to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, and that could include drug use. Is the, right, is the right to use whatever drugs you want to use as an adult actually super American? Cue bald eagle screams, wave the flag, play Lee Greenwood. I think so. Uh, should we punish crimes committed while on drugs and not drug use itself? Makes sense to me. Whatever you think about Hart's argument or mine, whether we decriminalize it or not, drug use, including opioid use, is not going away. It's been a part of the human story since we discovered drugs, and I think it will continue to be part of the human story for as long as that story continues to be written. We're never getting rid of drugs. The war on drugs, it's never going to be won. So I think that all that matters is how we choose to fight it or not fight it. Let's now dig into some facts, not just my opinions, uh, about humanity's historical predilection for opioids and see how the current opioid epidemic was uh, a long time coming in this week's Time Suck Timeline. Right after this week's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, 
what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. 
Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now let's learn more about our meat sack history with opioids, drugs, drugs, drugs. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Kicking things off way back. 3400 BCE, the earliest recorded reference to opium, dates back to 5,500 years ago when poppies were cultivated in lower Mesopotamia. The Sumerians called the opium poppy holgil, meaning the joy plant. Fuck yeah, they did. How crazy that we've been using this shit recreationally for all of written human history, and I'm sure for a lot longer than that. The Sumerians uh, would soon pass along the plant and its euphoric effects to the Assyrians, and then the art of poppy culling would continue from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, who in turn would pass their knowledge on to the Egyptians. All those ancient people in the biblical Old Testament days had access to opium. Surprising to me for some reason. I don't know why it is. Uh, were the Sumerians the first to figure out that the poppy milk gets you high as fuck? Uh, yeah, again, I doubt it. I bet someone figured out that plant had a little extra kick to it long before early humans figured out how to keep written records of anything. Probably slowed down the time it took us to get to written records. They're like, ah, fuck writing. Ah, just come eat, eat some more of this plant. Drink some more of this tea. You won't care about writing. Uh, at least as early as 1300 BCE in the capital city of Thebes, ancient Egyptians began cultivation of opium for use not just as a way to get high, but medically for use as a painkiller. The opium trade would flourish during the reign of several pharaohs, including King Tut, they began trading opium with other civilizations like the Phoenicians and Minoans, who then further traded it around the Mediterranean uh, into Greece, Carthage, Europe, uh, rest of Europe. Everybody wanted that sweet, sweet opium. Of course they did. Making all those ancient peoples feel so good. I'm sure sending a lot of them uh, into opium addiction as well, causing who knows how many of them to die of overdoses. Around 1100 BCE on the island of Cyprus, the peoples of the sea crafted surgical quality culling knives to harvest their opium which they'd been cultivating and trading since around the time of the fall of Troy. Around 460 BCE, uh, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, well, sometime during his life, which was 460 to 357 uh, BC, uh, he acknowledged opium's usefulness as a narcotic. He prescribed drinking the juice of the poppy mixed with the seed of nettle, nettle being another plant with a long history of use in traditional medicine. Opium juice, early whipple chill recipe. Uh, the ancient Greeks who held the opium poppy sacred claimed it was uh, Demeter, goddess of agriculture, who discovered it. Archaeologists would later find figurines of poppy goddesses in Crete, or maybe Lucifina figurines. Alexander the Greek, uh, or actually Alexander the Greek, Alexander the Great, subject of Suck 210, took opium with him as uh, he expanded his empire. Arabs, Greeks, Romans use it as a sedative. In 330 BCE, Alexander uh, introduced opium to the people of Persia and India. It would flourish in the land that is now Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Uh, roughly seven centuries later, around 400 CE, opium from the Egyptian fields at Thebes first introduced to China by Arab traders. Nearly all of Europe and Asia, the Middle East, Northern Africa, familiar with opium by now. Jumping way ahead now to the 1300s, 
Some people in power start to think maybe opium not so good. In Europe in the 14th century, the Catholic Church, an organization certainly in the running for the biggest fun killers of all time, they will begin to stigmatize opium use. Starting in the 1300s, opium disappears for about 200 years from European historical records. Opium became a taboo subject for those in circles of learning during the Holy Inquisition. Right? Burn the witch! Burn the opium! Burn the opium devil poppy drinking witch! In the eyes of the Inquisition, anything from the East was now linked to the devil. Of course, right? Opium is of the devil now. And to use it was to risk being branded a heretic and being burned at the stake, you know, suffering some kind of other similarly or similarly horrific fate. But of course, people kept doing opium. You know, no one's going to let a little devil talk, let a small possibility of being burned alive as God intended to keep them from that sweet opium. In the late 1500s, the Portuguese, while trading along the East China Sea, initiate the smoking of opium, possibly. Something the Dutch introduced smoking opium, uh, using a tobacco pipe, the Chinese closer to 1700. Everybody seems to think that Europeans first started smoking opium, though, not Asians, which I found surprising. Uh, smoking opium, in a way, can actually be traced back to Americans. Native Americans smoked tobacco long before Europeans, and from America, smoking tobacco spread to Europe, and then in Europe, some Portuguese or some, you know, Dutch, some some Europeans, you know, figured out that you could smoke chandu, a concentrated preparation of opium made by straining and boiling raw opium. And when you did that, it was better than drinking it. It kicked harder, right? So better than taking a pill, uh, which was how it was traditionally ingested, either like in pill or kind of in a tea or liquid form. The effects almost instantaneous, yeah, hit harder. Smoking opium was a practice of the China uh, was a practice the Chinese considered barbaric and subversive at first, but of course, you know, think Chinese opium dens in the American West. Many Chinese would later learn to love it and became a huge problem in China. Uh, opium would become big in Europe again, beginning around 1527, during the height of the Reformation. Opium reintroduced into European medical literature by Paracel- uh, Paracelsus. <laughs> Paracelsus, yeah, yeah. His name just looks weird to me. As uh, laudanum. Whiskey, laudanum, saw. Laudanum would become very popular in America later on. Again, uh, you know, bringing things back to the, the movie Tombstone. Wyatt Earp's common law wife in the movie, Maddie Blaylock, struggled with an addiction to laudanum. Real Maddie died in 1888 from taking a lethal dose of laudanum and alcohol. Her death ruled as suicide by opium poisoning. She's buried in Arizona. The Arizona ghost town of Pinal City. Uh, anyway, laudanum is a tincture, a medicine made by dissolving a, uh, a drug into alcohol uh, of opium containing approximately 10% powdered opium by weight, the equivalent of 1% morphine. In short, laudanum is prepared by dissolving extracts from the opium poppy in ethanol, mostly used as a pain reliever and as a cough suppressant. The medicine of choice for consumption. Backing up a bit now. Uh, 1606, uh, ships chartered by England's Queen Elizabeth I instructed to purchase the finest Indian opium and transport it back to England. India was once the world's biggest grower and exporter of opium. India, of course, not far from Afghanistan. In 1676, physician Thomas Sydenham made one of the biggest impacts on society by publishing his recipe for laudanum, sharing his discovery worldwide. Now it becomes wildly popular across the growing British Empire and then across the empires of other giant European colonizers. Until the early 20th century, it would be sold across the world without a prescription. Uh, the side effects of laudanum were expanded upon by surgeon George Young, who wrote in 1753, everybody knows a large dose of laudanum will kill, so need not be cautioned on that head. But there are few who consider it a slow poison, though it certainly is. Its addictive qualities were noticed particularly in women, who according to French doctor J. Hector St. John de Croissier, were taking a dose of opium every morning and so deep-rooted is it 
that they would be at a loss how to live without this indulgence. In the 17th century, the English physician Thomas Brown conducted experiments upon the dosage of opium on various animals. Brown's contemporary, the physician Thomas Sydenham, so-called father of British medicine, declared, Among the remedies which has pleased the Almighty God to give to man to relieve his sufferings, none is so universal and so efficacious as opium. In 1729, the first opium-related regulation that we could find popped up. That year, the Chinese emperor, Yang Cheng, issues an edict prohibiting the smoking of opium and its domestic sale, except under license for use as medicine. He does this because he's noticed that Chinese citizens who have started smoking opium all fucking willy-nilly, suddenly not the best parents, not the best workers or court subjects. Of course not. They're high as fuck all the time. They're opium addicts. In 1750, the British East India Company assumes control of the opium-growing districts of India. Uh, British ship, shipping, British shipping, excuse me, now dominates the opium trade out of Calcutta. Big money. Less than two decades later, 1767, the British East India Company is importing a massive amount of opium from China. 1775, opium first arrives in America. A few people hadn't already snuck it in already. I'm guessing there were some down low opium users who just didn't show up on the historical record. Uh, Old timey doctors now prescribe an opium laudanum and in other forms to their patients to manage pain as well as help with dysentery, coughs, other maladies. Colonists are cultivating uh, opium in their gardens. Even founding Father Thomas Jefferson grows opium poppies at Monticello. With no regulation on the use of opioids, there is widespread marketing use and abuse. It's sold as a cure-all for everything ranging from diarrhea to a toothache. By 1793, the British East India Company has a complete monopoly on the opium trade in the Far East. All poppy growers in India forbidden to sell opium to any competitor trading companies. This will soon lead to some wars. Their, uh, their monopoly they're trying to hold over there some, or their opium interests over there will. 1799, China's emperor, uh, Jia Qing, bans opium completely because it's been drastically weakening the Chinese empire. He makes trade and poppy cultivation illegal. Long before America's opioid epidemic, China had one of their own opioid epidemics. A year later, in 1800, the British Levin Company purchased nearly half of all the opium coming out of Smyrna, Turkey, strictly for importation to Europe and the United States. If China won't grow it, right, they'll get it from somewhere else. So many people taking opium. It's a big business. The British are making a lot of money. Supply and demand. Or I'm sorry, I guess uh, China, China, I don't know that China was growing it. So they just don't want it anymore. Uh, they're still getting it from India to some places, but now they're also taking it from Turkey into Europe and the U.S. A lot of people taking uh, opium all, all around the world now, right? British are making a lot of money, a lot of supply and demand. They have most of the world's supply and wherever people are using opium, there, you know, suddenly is a big demand. In 1806, Frederick Wilhelm Schertner of Germany isolates the most popular pain-killing alkaloid from opium, calls it morphine, after Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams. Morpheus, kind of a scary dude in Greek mythology, uh, he shaped and formed the dreams through which he could appear to mortals in any form. This talent made Morpheus a messenger of the gods, able to communicate divine messages to sleeping mortals. Though he could take any form, Morpheus's uh, true form was that of a winged demon, Ichiwawa. Some statues of Morpheus have been sculpted that depict him having one winged ear. This is said to symbolize him listening to dreams through his regular ear and then delivering messages from the gods through dreams with his winged ear. Got one of those sweet winged ears. You don't see those very often. Uh, morphine is lauded as God's own medicine for its reliability, long-lasting effects, and safety shortly after its creation. 1819, writer John Keats, other English literary personalities experiment with opium intended for strict uh, recreational use, simply for the high, taken at extended intervals. One poet, Samuel Taylor Co uh, Coleridge, wrote to his brother, Laudanum gave me repose, not sleep, 
But you, I believe, I know how to, but you, I believe, know how divine that repose is. What a spot of enchantment, a green spot of fountain and flowers and trees in the very heart of a waste of sands. Okay. It was clearly high as fuck as he wrote that. Uh, Percy Shelley was said by scholars to have used opium to alter his state of thinking and free his mind, help with creativity, to dampen his nerves. Uh, Shelley took laudanum according to letters he wrote, as well as uh, biographies. When Shelley secretively began to become romantically involved with Mary Godwin, he started to carry a flask with laudanum in it, you know, to calm his nerves. After Shelley was banned from seeing Mary, he reportedly ran into her house, gave her laudanum, waving a pistol in the air and shouting, by this you can escape tyranny. They wish to separate us, my beloved, but death shall unite us. So again, he's fucking super high there. Uh, Shelley believed that opium allowed the individual to question societal norms and beliefs while allowing for ideas of radical social change to form. So drugs, uh, yeah, they are great at getting, at getting you to see things from a different perspective. Shelley soon learned that not all was well, though, with opium. He began experiencing body spasms and upon visiting a new doctor was warned to stop taking laudanum. He did not heed the doctor's warning and continued to have spasms, haunting dreams, confusions about reality. Got a little cray-cray. Uh, opium use did catalyze his uh, creativ- uh, creativity, but conversely, detrimentally affected his mental health and well-being. And then he died. He drowned in a shipwreck at the age of 29 in 1822. Wonder how much longer he would have lived with his opium addiction had he not drowned. Backing up a year to 1821, English author, literary critic Thomas De Quincey publishes an autobiographical account of opium addiction, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Drinking laudanum or smoking opium, the two ways most people were taking opium at that time. Uh, De Quincey started using opium as a reliever, pain reliever for a toothache in 1804, and his book was the first documentation of an opium addict to be published. He focused on the pleasures and pains along with its influence on his work. His book was often accused of encouraging individuals to try opium and was blamed when they subsequently suffered from its side effects or addiction. With the ability to purchase laudanum easily for many street vendors, De Quincey was quoted saying, happiness might now be bought for a penny. With respect to literary triumphs, De Quincey notes in Confessions uh, how the increased activity in the brain because of opium increases his ability to create new things out of raw material. And he would live a long life. He would write a lot. He would live to the age of 74. 1827, E. Merck and Company of Germany began the commercial manufacturing of morphine, start kicking it around the world. 1830, the British dependence on opium for medicinal and recreational use reaches an all-time high. Jardine, Matheson, and Company of London inherit India and its opium from the British East India Company, also in the 1830s. With the U.S. undergoing the Industrial Revolution, the first manufacturing of morphine happens stateside. On March 18, 1839, the first opium war begins between the British Empire and China's Qing Dynasty. Despite opium being illegal in China for decades at this point, British merchants were still selling tons and tons of opium in China to Chinese smugglers. So they're selling it illegally every year. And Chinese officials know it, and they're getting pretty fucking pissed. In 1838, they began to make selling opium or smuggling it a crime punishable by death. The British are pressuring uh, the Chinese to legalize and tax it. They don't want to. Finally, in 1839, sick of the British putting opium, uh, you know, pushing it on the Chinese, uh, Qing Emperor uh, Dao Guang uh, has a bunch of British merchant ships seized has the opium on board destroyed. Also orders a blockade of all foreign ships on China's Pearl River. And the British respond with war. The first opium war, the last almost exactly three years. Over 3,000 Chinese will die compared to around 300 British. And then the Chinese, fearing that a lot more of them are about to die, signed a peace treaty on August 29th, 1842, the Treaty of Nanking. And this treaty fucks China. This treaty basically allows British merchants to trade with Chinese merchants as much as they fucking want to. And you'd better not check our fucking ships for opium. 
still illegal, but don't look at our ships. Don't you fucking even think about looking at our ships. This treaty also gave Hong Kong to the British. Opium continues to flow into China. A lot of opium flown into America around this time too. 1840, New Englanders are bringing in so much opium, uh, the estimated 24,000 pounds a year, that the U.S. Customs Office promptly puts a duty fee on the import of opium, right? If people are making money at it, the tax guy got to, has to get involved. Uh, 1852, the British arrive in Lower Burma, importing large quantities of opium from India, selling it through a government-controlled opium monopoly there too. The British are pumping opium into Southeast Asia big time. 1853, another big year for opium. Alexander Wood of Scotland devises the first hypodermic needle to administer morphine to a patient suffering from neuralgia or nerve pain. The needle has been introduced to opium. And while it would not become a super popular method of ingesting for uh, over a century, there's no putting this genie back in the box now or bottle. You know, I don't, I don't know where the genie lives. Is he in a box or a bottle? It's hard to remember. Uh, shooting it straight into the bloodstream. Man, the most powerful way to use opioids. Effects felt essentially instantaneously. You can achieve a peak high in just a few seconds. Uh, compared to alcohol, it'd be like pounding a bitch, big shot of whiskey, right? Throwing a big shot of whiskey back and then immediately you're fall down, blackout, sloppy drunk. 1856, there's another opium war. The second opium war begins October 8th of that year, will last just over four years. Excuse me, this time the British and the French are ganging up on the Qing Empire. It was fought again due to Chinese resistance to having Europeans pump their empire full of massive amounts of opium. Chinese Marines once again capture a vessel that belongs to the British. British don't like that. War ensues. The U.S. will aid the British a bit in this war. The result is that uh, there will be a full legalization of opium in China now, even though Chinese, uh, the empire doesn't want that. Uh, a little more land for the British around Hong Kong and a very weakened Qing dynasty. A couple years later, during the American Civil War, morphine utilized as a battlefield anesthetic. Jesus. Uh, many soldiers will develop morphine dependency as a result, an addiction that will become to be known as soldier's disease. This will lead some physicians to start wondering about how powerful an addiction to morphine really is. Start to call it narcomania. We got some narcomaniacs around here. In the 1860s, Americans now buying all kinds of over-the-counter pills and elixirs that contain opiates to treat menstrual cramps, teething, headaches, any other kinds of aches or pain. And yes, teething, like as in babies. Get that baby some heroin. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, technically morphine, but you get it. It's fucking insane. 1874, English researcher C.R. Wright first synthesizes heroin or diacetylmorphine by boiling morphine over a stove. Oh, and actually, before I continue, just flashed to my brain. I do remember reading it back a long time ago now about how, yeah, like, yeah, babies would would die quite a bit. Uh, and they thought that part of the death rate was from this, uh, you know, these, this, this fucking laudanum that the babies are being given. Okay, more governments now. Try and, uh, sorry, back, Jesus, where, where the hell am I? Got distracted, had a random thought pop in my head, got up my notes, and I don't know where I am now. Here we go. 1874, San Francisco. Smoking opium in the city limits is banned and is confined to neighboring Chinatown and their other uh, and and their opium dens. More governments try and begin to halt the consumption of uh, opium in the late 19th century. 1878, Britain passes the Opium Act in India with hopes of reducing opium consumption in their uh, Asian territory. The, the, the fucking problem they started. Under the new regulation, the selling of opium restricted to registered Chinese opium smokers and Indian opium eaters while the Burmese are strictly prohibited from smoking opium. So that's kind of weird lines to draw, but I'm sure it made sense at the time, maybe kind of. Uh, again, trying to curb a problem they created, just like America's doing now. Another opioid epidemic that occurred long before ours. 1890, U.S. Congress and its earliest law enforcement legislation on narcotics imposes a tax on opium and morphine, but you can still use it however you want. 
1898, heroin is first produced for commercial distribution by the Bayer Company, uh, the same company that produces aspirin today, right? So I mentioned that earlier. In the early 1900s, the philanthropic St. James Society in the U.S. mounts a campaign to supply free samples of heroin through the mail to morphine addicts who are trying to give up their opioid habits. This, as you might imagine, does not work well. <laughs> what a f- fucking ridiculous. Addicted to morphine? Boy, howdy, do we have a cure for you? Nothing gets somebody off morphine like heroin. It's so much stronger. You think morphine makes you feel good? Morphine is for little babies. Take the binky out of your mouth and try heroin. That'll put some hair on your balls. That'll put some perk in your tits. So fucking crazy. The people just trying to help. We're actually giving fucking heroin to morphine addicts <laughs> to try and get them off of uh, opioids. Oh man, you're struggling with alcoholism? Knocking back 15 beers a day? Do I have a cure for you? It's called tequila. Unreal. Uh, also in the early 1900s, Americans start to crush the pills and inhale opiate powder for a faster, more intense high. Now we're snorting it. 1906, several physicians now experiment with treatments for a growing number of heroin addicts, many of whom have gotten addicted to heroin while trying to wean off of that morphine addiction. Dr. Alexander Lambert and Charles B. Towns tout their popular cure as the most advanced, effective, and compassionate cure for heroin addiction. It consists of a seven-day regimen, which includes a five-day purge of heroin from the addict system with doses of belladonna delirium, aka nightshade. Nightshade is another plant like the opium poppy that can fuck you up with its alkaloids. They can cause euphoria and hallucinations and in high doses, disorientation, memory loss, coma, even death. What they can't do is effectively help you get off of heroin. So now you just got two things in your system. Uh, the same year, U.S. Congress passes the Pure Food and Drug Act, Drug Act, requiring contents labeling on patent medicines by pharmaceutical companies. As a result, the availability of opiates and the number of opiate consumers significantly declines. But you can still get it if you want it. 1909, the first federal drug prohibition passes in the U.S. outline the importation of opium. Now it's a lot harder to get it. February 1st, 1909, the International Opium Commission convenes in Shanghai. Heading the U.S. delegation, Dr. Hamilton Wright and Episcopal Bishop Henry Brent both try to convince an international delegation of the immoral and evil effects of opium. They try and get the British Empire to stop filling Asia with opium. 1910, after 150 years of failed attempts to get rid of opium, the Chinese finally successful in convincing the British to dismantle the opium trade there. 1910, more legislation in the U.S. Congress passes the Harrison Narcotics Act, which now requires a written prescription for any narcotic. Importers, manufacturers, distributors of narcotics must register with the Treasury Department, pay applicable taxes. Uh, This act passed in response to the sudden emergence of street heroin abuse, uh, or is passed, as a response to the sudden emergence of street heroin abuse as well as morphine dependence. Street opiates are now illegal, but penalties for dealing and possession, not very severe. Not a felony to use heroin, uh, not minimum sentencing requirements. As the U.S. enters prohibition in 1920, there's a serious pushback against narcotics. Enter the Grin and Barrett era for pain relief. Sympathy for those uh, dealing with chronic pain greatly diminishes now for a while. With propaganda films like Reefer Madness for Weed, There's a strong association between drugs in general and being a lazy and and filthy degenerate, someone of the lowest moral fiber. Patients with unexplained pain in the 1920s regarded as deluded, malingerers, abusers, junkies. Cancer patients from the 1920s all the way up until the 1950s encouraged to stay away from opioids until their lives could, quote, be measured in weeks. Wait for the very end, you fucking dirty hippie, beatnik, pussy piece of shit. Well, you're dying of cancer. You want some morphine to ease your pain? What are you, some kind of pinko commie? This attitude persisted into the latter half of the 20th century. A general worldwide 
uh, opiophobia spread through American Europe. 1923, the U.S. Treasury Department's Narcotics Division, first federal drug agency, bans legal narcotic sales. Uh, with prohibition of legal venues to purchase heroin, addicts forced to buy from illegal street dealers. In the wake of the first federal ban on opium, a thriving black market emerges in New York's Chinatown, then elsewhere across the country. Uh, World War II will disrupt the global heroin trade greatly. Several years later, uh, after the war from 1948 to 1974, Corsican gangsters dominate the U.S. heroin market through their connection with Sicilian mafia drug distributors. Uh, distributors. So now the mafia is controlling the heroin supply. After refining raw Turkish opium in French laboratories, the uh, mafia's heroin is made easily available for purchase by drug users, first on in New York City streets, then elsewhere across the U.S., but uh, mostly in big cities. In the 1950s, U.S. efforts to contain the spread of communism in Asia stopped the red spread. Easy Bojangles, don't have a stroke. It involves forging alliances with tribes and warlords inhabiting the Golden Triangle and expands covering Laos, Thailand, and Burma, thus providing accessibility and protection along the southeast border of China. So in order to maintain the relationship with the warlords, while continuing to fund the struggle against communism, the U.S. and France supplied drug warlords and their armies with ammunition, arms, air transport, uh, for, the, for the production and sale of opium in some cases. The result, an explosion in the availability and illegal flow of heroin into the U.S. and into the hands of drug dealers and addicts. The price to pay for feeling more secure against Chinese communists was making deals with Southeast Asian opium traffickers. Also, Afghanistan first began producing opium in significant quantities in the mid-1950s to supply its neighbor Iran after poppy cultivation was banned there. Afghanistan, neighboring Pakistan, increased production, soon become major suppliers of opiates to Western Europe and North America in the mid-1970s. When political instability following the Vietnam War, combined with a prolonged drought, disrupts opium supplies from the Golden Triangle. Speaking of Vietnam, U.S. involvement in Vietnam is blamed for a massive surge in illegal heroin being smuggled into the States. And the CIA played a huge part in that. The CIA's role in the opioid epidemic is a big story, perhaps for another day. To aid U.S. allies, the CIA sets up a charter airline, Air America, there was a movie done about this, to transport raw opium from Burma and Laos. During these years, the number of heroin addicts in the U.S. reaches an estimated 750,000. The Controlled Substances Act, written into law now, 1970. It goes into effect the following year under President Richard Nixon's administration. It creates groupings of drugs based on their potential for abuse. This shit is ridiculous. Heroin is classified as a Schedule One drug, while other opiates, including morphine, fentanyl, Oxycodone, methadone, or Schedule II. There are five classifications uh, with Schedule I drugs being deemed the worst. Drug is not safe to use even under medical supervision. What's interesting is that marijuana is also listed as a Schedule I drug. What a fucking joke. <laughs> marijuana now legal in most states, at least medically, but federally still considered to be a Schedule I controlled substance, right up there with heroin. Other Schedule I drugs, uh, DMT, LSD, MDMA, uh, aka uh, ecstasy or molly, psilocybin, you know, shrooms, uh, peyote, mescaline, and more. What a, what a fucking joke. Cocaine is a Schedule II drug. So cocaine, federally, not as problematic in theory as wheat. Why is that? Because historically, cocaine's a white-collar, white Wall Street drug. Uh, the Nixon administration also repealed the federal two- to ten-year mandatory minimum sentences for possession of marijuana, started federal demand reduction programs, drug treatment programs. America's prisons, for the first time, flooded not with violent offenders, but with nonviolent drug users. People struggling with, say, an opioid, an opioid addiction. And this shit's crazy. I've already talked about it, you know, here earlier, talked about it a lot in the uh, El Chapo sucks. So we'll, we'll move on. 
June 1st, 1973, President Nixon creates the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, under the Justice Department to uh, consolidate virtually all federal powers for drug enforcement in a single agency and really start pursuing and punishing drug abusers. The war on drugs, right? Full on. It's still being waged. Uh, 1980, a letter entitled Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Touched on that earlier. Not a study, just an exploratory article. Uh, looked at incidents of addiction at very at a very specific set of hospitalized patients. Probably not carried out well. This article, you know, became one of the most widely cited as proof that narcotics safe treatment for chronic pain, not that addictive. How interesting that the groundwork for the opioid crisis laid during the Reagan years, right? The war on drugs going fucking full steam ahead. Meanwhile, opioids are like, nah, just sneak these out there. Now we're going to punish everybody real hard for street drugs. And we're also going to flood the country with the same kind of drugs that just show up in a little orange bottle instead of a baggie. In the first term of the presidency of Ronald Reagan, uh, he signed the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, which expanded penalties towards possession of cannabis, established a comprehensive federal system of mandatory minimum sentences for drugs like, uh, you know, heroin, established procedures for civil asset forfeiture related to drug crimes. Great optics plays really well into the simple thinking, just say no to drugs, voting base. People who also think that teaching only abstinence for sex ed is super smart. What an easy, never have to think hard, you know, way to go through life. Don't want an unexpected pregnancy? Just don't ever have sex. Never have it. You don't want to go to prison for drugs? Just never, ever take them. You don't want to be persecuted for homosexuality for being a tra- or for being a transsexual? Just be straight. It's that simple. You don't want to be a victim of racism? Just don't be black. Come on. Put it together. Uh, 1986. Uh, the World Health Organization. Address the or addresses the undertreatment of post-operative and cancer pain in 1986 with their cancer pain monograph. Suddenly, many people are wondering how to treat pain the best. If opioids, which had relatively uh, been untouched by physicians in the first half of the 20th century because of their association with crime, were actually safe to use on patients suffering long-term pain thanks to some new studies, let's use them. Same year, Congress passes the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. Right, more Reagan tough on crime, war on drugs, pandering bullshit the suburban voting crowd who never looked at this issue in the way this episode has laid it out for people, again, who seem uh, uh, to be allergic to thinking complexly. This this new um, 1986 act establishes mandatory, you know, more mandatory minimum prison sentences for uh, a range of drug-related crimes, including a death-resulting offense involving the sharing or the sale of drugs. Uh, Congress assumed the legislation would would lead law enforcement officials to target high-level traffickers. It does not. America's prisons are instead filled even further with low-level offenders. Meanwhile, illicit drug use and trafficking continue unabated. See how stupid all this is? Drug abuse and drug trafficking just continue. But now lots of people are in prison, which weakens the economy in a variety of ways. Families are broken down. Prime working years are lost to incarceration. The national tax burden is increased. Right In the midst of the war on drugs from 2003 to 2014, U.S. heroin use fucking tripled. In 2014, the National Institute on Drug Abuse reported that an estimated 24.6 million Americans over the age of 12 had used an illicit drug during the last month. This accounted for a 9.4 point, this accounted, excuse me, for 9.4% of that demographic, an increase from 8.3% in 2002. Why are we fighting the war on drugs again? If it doesn't lead to less drug abuse, but does lead to more incarceration, logically, why the fuck are we doing it? I've never gotten a good answer for that. Uh, refocusing this on opioids, by 1999, 86% of U.S. medical patients who are using opioids are using them for non-cancer pain now, 
right? It's uh, the days of just like walk it off, just grin and bear it. They're over. It's like, no, no, you shouldn't hurt at all. The pain should be gone. Just take a lot of drugs. Communities where opioids are readily available and prescribed liberally are the first places to experience increased opioid abuse and diversion. Of course, the transfer of opioids for, from the individual for whom they are prescribed to others, which is legal, right? People taking their prescriptions, selling them, giving them to other people. From 1997 to 2002, shortly after it hits the U.S. market, OxyContin prescriptions increased from 670,000 to 6.2 million. In 2000, the Joint Commission publishes Standards for Pain Management, emphasizing the need for organizations to conduct quantitative assessments of pain as recommended by the Institute of Medicine. The Federal of State Medical Boards and the Drug Enforcement Agency also issued statements promising less regulatory scrutiny over opioid prescribers calming down physicians who are reluctant to prescribe large amounts of opioids. So that's awesome. Yeah, just fucking write as many as you want. You won't get in trouble. The rapid institution of strict standards for pain management in hospital systems culminated in several unintended consequences. Uh, Physicians now mandated to provide adequate pain control by the TJC, resulting in a heavy reliance on opioid medications. The fear amongst hospital administration is that if new TJC benchmarks are not met, and they're going to be unlikely to receive federal health care funds going forward. So they've been incentivized to prescribe more opioids. Hospitals that invested more readily in opioid therapy would then receive better satisfaction rates as well amongst the patient population, leading to even more funding. Pharmaceutical companies heavily pushed the use of opioids as a humane treatment option, often using paid physician consultants to expound on the safety benefits of opioid use. Not prescribing opioids for a patient with pain risks being labeled as inhumane, sometimes even to the extent of litigation for the undertreatment of pain. You could be sued as a doctor for not prescribing enough opioids. The culture change, driven by intent to ensure access to pain relief, had now really opened the floodgates to the current opioid epidemic. Now we're at 2007. The federal government files criminal charges against Purdue Pharma for advertising OxyContin as a safer and less addictive treatment or uh, less addictive alternative than other opioids. Purdue Pharma, a handful of executives do plead guilty, but they don't go to prison. Uh, Purdue agrees to pay a total of $634.5 million to resolve Justice Department investigations, as well as $19.5 million in a settlement to 26 states in the District of Columbia. And they can afford to pay all this because they've been making fucking billions. And they keep selling it just in a new formulation now. In 2010, the FDA approves a new formulation of OxyContin said to contain uh, abuse or said to contain abuse deterring qualities. But it doesn't. It's still abused. The second wave of the opioid epidemic starts around 2010 with a rapid increase in deaths from heroin abuse. Got a lot of new heroin addicts thanks to OxyContin because once they run out of that, once they can't get a new prescription, once they can't uh, afford more, they turn to heroin. Uh, And a Schedule 1 controlled substance, right, is sending a lot of users to prison for long stays now. The use of heroin now increases in both sexes, the majority of age brackets, and all socioeconomic groups. Deaths due to heroin-related overdoses increased by 286% from 2002 to 2013. And approximately 80% of heroin users admit to misusing prescription opioids before turning to heroin, right? Four out of five of them started off with OxyContin or something similar, then went to heroin. 2012, the number of prescriptions written for opioid pain medication reaches 259 fucking million, enough for every adult in the U.S. to have a bottle of pills. The third wave hits in 2013 of the opioid epidemic. It began as an increase in deaths related to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. The sharpest rise in drug-related deaths occurs in 2016 with over 20,000 deaths from fentanyl and related drugs. Uh, I think actually that was from a source prior to 2021. I think just recently during the pandemic, it was even worse of an increase. Uh, The increase in fentanyl deaths linked to illicitly manufactured fentanyl as opposed to diverted medical 
fentanyl. So this, uh, all this fentanyl on the streets isn't because people are stealing it from hospitals. People are fucking making this shit now in their own labs. Now let's get into the story of one person in a challenging legal situation that would lead many to question how the U.S. government is combating the opioid epidemic. On April 27th, 2015, and there's so many stories like this. A young woman living near Columbus, Ohio, named Jamie, asked by her friend Courtney to get her some heroin. Both women have been using opioids for quite some time at this point. Uh, They weren't really good friends, just kind of casual acquaintances. Jamie was supporting two sons on her own as a single mom, paying the bills by dealing blackjack at the local Hollywood casino. She tried heroin as a young woman, giving it up. But then when she started working around the clock at the casino, she tried some Perk 30s, 30 milligrams of Percocet for pain relief slash escapism slash a little bit of euphoria. Started using them regularly at work, still doing her job well, but also using daily. Eventually, she's paying more than 600 bucks a week for these Perk 30s. The amount of heroin required to produce the same effect, only $10 a day, 70 bucks a week. So she makes the switch to heroin, starts buying from her boyfriend. She meets some other people who deal small times and people who, uh, you know, would ask her to get heroin, other drugs for them, including Courtney, who worked as a nanny for a family in Columbus. On April 25th, Courtney heads to Columbus for her older sister's birthday party, joking that her boyfriend was driving her nuts. She tells Jamie, I'm about to do the rest of these Xanax, adding that when the pills are gone, she's going to be fucked. Jamie, realizing that Courtney is afraid of withdrawals, replies, well, worst case scenario, I can get you dope and that'll help. Two days later, April 27th, 2015, Courtney asked Jamie for Xanax again. When an hour and a half elapsed with no response, she requests 150 bucks worth of heroin and a rig, meaning a needle and a syringe. Jamie ends up buying Courtney $175 worth of heroin. The two meet at Walmart on Hilliard Rome Road. At the Walmart, Jamie notices Courtney is slurring her words, asks if she's taken any Xanax. The combination of heroin and Xanax is uh, you know, known to produce a, quote, Cadillac high, but can be very easy to overdose. Courtney says, nope, she's just sick. Jamie later testifies that she thought about how livid she'd be if another user inches away withheld the substance that would immediately make her well. So she gives Courtney the heroin. And the next text from Courtney's phone arrives shortly after 11 o'clock and it says, Courtney has passed away from an overdose. Jamie's stomach sinks. What will happen next is a strange and terrifying criminal case. Originally, Courtney's death not treated as a crime. After Courtney met Jamie in the Walmart parking lot, she drove across the road to a Meyer gas station, entered the restroom, Remained there for more than an hour with the door locked. A corporate security manager eventually forced the door open, found Courtney lying unconscious alongside a used syringe. A police officer tried to revive her until paramedics arrived. His partner searched Courtney's belongings, found a black rock substance, another syringe, a shoelace, two singed spoons, a lighter, the migraine migraine medication, sumatriptan, and dozens of suboxone wrappers. Right? Stop signs, boop, subbies, oranges, remember? Paramedics administered administered three doses of Narcan, that opioid antagonist, but it was too late. At 7.49 p.m. at the Columbus Hospital, Courtney's pronounced dead. Homicide detectives from the Columbus Division of Police initially classified the case as, quote, not a crime. Later, when police finalized Courtney's autopsy, her death categorized as an accidental overdose. But three of Courtney's uncles on her mother's side, the Planks, are police officers. One of them, Brent Plank, a longtime narcotics officer in Columbus, decides to independently investigate Courtney's death. He wants to know who's responsible, who's selling the stuff. That's one way to look at it. You know, another fucking way to look at it is that Courtney was responsible. What happened to personal responsibility, right? The only one putting those drugs in Courtney's system was Courtney. On August 12th, Jamie had just begun her Wednesday night shift when a casino security guard now pulls her off the floor. Two plainclothes detectives from the special investigation unit of the Franklin County Sheriff's Office are waiting to question her. Jamie responds to their small talk amiably, 
or amicably uh, believes them uh, when they said they weren't looking to arrest her for drug trafficking. They asked her when the last time she'd seen Courtney was, listen, we're not here to arrest you for drug trafficking. The sergeant tells her, when was the last time you've seen Courtney? And then she says, I got a text message saying she was dead, adding that she'd seen her that day. Then they're asking, of course, you know, what do you remember what you guys did? Uh, she says she was trying to find drugs. What kind of drugs? Anything to make her well. Uh, then did Jamie help her out? She first says she can't remember. Then the sergeant says he needs the truth. We want to know where the dope came from that you gave to her. Panicked, she says she wants a lawyer. The sergeant then informs her that she's the subject of a homicide investigation now. The charge would be involuntarily, involuntary excuse me, manslaughter. Under state law, her offense would, like rape and aggravated robbery, be a felony of the first degree. How could they do this to her? Faced with the growing rise of opioid use and deaths, law enforcement officials and prosecutors had begun treating fatal overdoses as fucking homicides. The cases are categorized differently. Drug-induced homicide, murder by overdose, drug delivery resulting in death, and overdose homicide. More than two dozen states now have laws allowing prosecutors to bring felony charges against anyone who provides drugs who provides drugs that prove fatal. What the fuck? Again, what about personal responsibility? Uh, should a doctor who maybe overprescribes opioids that then lead to addiction, that then lead to someone seeking street narcotics that then lead to an overdose, should they also be charged with murder? That is actually happening sometimes. Uh, what about pharmacy execs, salespeople, or you know, big pharma execs, salespeople who market and sell opioids that doctors then prescribe? Should they be put on trial for murder? Maybe the scientist who invented OxyContin, should they be put on trial for mass murder? I mean, how far do we want to take all this? States without specific legislation, such as Ohio, can indict a supplier under existing statutes. Manslaughter, depraved heart, reckless homicide, murder. Uh, potential punishments range from a year in prison to a death sentence. Uh, according to a recent study by the Northeastern University School of Law's Health and Justice Action Lab, prosecutors in almost every state have now exercised the overdose homicide option. According to legal experts, uh, this new legal maneuver can be traced back to one guy, Len Bias. Len Bias was a superstar basketball forward at the University of Maryland. He collapsed on June 19th, 1986 in his dorm. Less than 48 hours earlier, he'd been drafted by the Boston Celtics. Bias had taken high-quality cocaine, but politicians in the media associated his death with the nation's burgeoning crack epidemic. Democrats were trying to retake the Senate. They wanted to prove they could be tough on crime. So House Speaker Tip O'Neill urged Congress to craft forceful anti-drug legislation that candidates could cite in their re-election campaigns. We cannot let our kids die on drugs. You know, it's some nice shit to say, but you got to actually have a fucking plan. So, you know, plain political optics fucking up people's lives again. Drugs are bad. Kids are dying. We have to punish people. Cue grandparents in the suburbs, you know, who vote in droves, shaking their heads in agreement, sitting there watching the fucking TV, right? They're about to watch Wheel of Fortune, maybe a Lifetime movie, and then get into bed by nine. Cue people who have zero fucking complex understanding of any of this shit, being the ones who vote in politicians who then try to please them with solutions that don't work. As Northeastern reported, overdose homicide prosecutions tend to sweep up and harshly punish minor offenders who are struggling with addiction and who purchase drugs on behalf of themselves and their peers, right? It's not some kingpin boogeyman. It's just these people's friends who are also struggling with addiction, buying this stuff a lot of times. Leo Boletsky, the director of the Northeastern Law Lab, studied 263 prosecutions that occurred between 2000 in 2016, found that about half of the defendants were friends, family, or romantic partners of the person who died, not big-time drug dealers. Just people not any different from the friend who ends up making the beer run for everyone else at the party. Should that person be put on trial for murder? If anyone dies of alcohol poisoning? Shit's fucking ridiculous. Fucking hate frivolous legislation. I hate how much we consume in this country. I fucking hated it for so long. 
Oh, my God. In Wisconsin, Daniel Adams, a defense attorney, surveyed a year's worth of his state's cases from 2015, found that only 19 of 81 defendants were commercial drug dealers. Politicians seem to have been, you know, extremely opportunistic in their champion, championing of overdose homicide law. In his sentencing memo, Adams, that defense attorney in Wisconsin, wrote that many state prosecutors criminalize addiction as a way to show action in the face of the opioid scourge. Just more bullshit optics. Look at the good job I'm doing, mommy. I'm tough on crime. I'm a good boy. Can I have a hug? Fucking idiots. 2017, a Florida sheriff would warn in a video that went viral on social media, if our agents can show the nexus between you, the pusher of poison, and the person that overdoses and dies, we will charge you with murder. For fuck's sake. They're the same person. Just two people struggling with addiction. Heart in the right place with that sheriff, but brain fucking up his ass. 2018, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions would declare that prosecutors must consider every lawful tool at their disposal, including the fucking death penalty for people who get opioids to their friends. Is this the right way to fight the opioid epidemic? Many people, including me, obviously seem to think, fuck no, so stupid. An article detailing Jamie's case had the headline, the wrong way to fight the opioid crisis. No one has formally documented how many Americans are going to prison in overdose homicide cases, but the nonprofit Drug Policy Alliance found that between 2011 and 2016, media references to such prosecutions rose by more than 300%. The sentences can be outlandish. In 2015 in Louisiana, Jarrett McCasland, whose girlfriend fatally overdosed, found guilty of second-degree murder, automatically sentenced to life in prison without parole. Jesus Christ. Again, he didn't force her to do anything. And just like her, also addicted to opiates. Thousands of people signed a petition arguing that McCasland is being punished for being addicted and that the verdict is a slap in the face to all who seek help from this painful disease. Even the fucking judge said that it bothered him tremendously that he had to impose, due to sentencing guidelines, this life sentence. McCaslin's appeals attorney later said, the court was right to be troubled by a law that equates poor judgment with murder. Exactly. Sadly, a lot of other similar cases. What about Jamie in Ohio? Jamie was indicted in August 2015. In addition to involuntary manslaughter, she was charged with trafficking, as well as the uh, lesser-known felony called corrupting others, corrupting another with drugs. That's some bullshit moral stuff. <laughs> I'm charging you with corrupting others with drugs. <laughs> oh, my God. In Ohio, that carries a mandatory minimum sentence of two years in prison. Uh, she faced up to 20 and a half years, pled not guilty, was found guilty. The judge, Chris Brown, called the case an undeniably tragic situation, noting that if Jamie hadn't given Courtney heroin, somebody else probably would have. Yep. Nevertheless, he faulted Jamie for having provided her the means sentenced her to a term of four years and 11 months, so five years. Sent to a woman's prison in Maryville, Marysville, uh, released in on April 25th, 2019. Great. Single mom with two kids already struggling with an opioid addiction spends uh, several years in prison. And for what? For helping another addict get her fix. Good job, justice system. 2016, the CDC publishes specific guidelines for prescribing alternative pain medications for patients previously using opioids to fight chronic pain. They recommend over-the-counter. <laughs> pain relievers like acetaminophen. Hey, I know you're taking Oxycontin and have been for years, but why don't you just take some Advil or something or some, you know, Bayer or fucking whatever. Tylenol <laughs> does not work near as well as opiates. Uh, individuals who had previously managed their pain through an opioid prescription now forced to find alternative methods of treatment. Doctors no longer prescribing uh, the stuff they were previously pressured to prescribe. Now they're pressured not to prescribe. What does that mean? Well, it means more people finding street drugs, more felons. More people getting charged with some form of homicide for getting other opioid addicts, street opiates, because they can't afford them anymore legally. Fuck yeah. 
64,000 people died from drug overdoses in 2016. Over 42,000 of those uh, are from opioid deaths. Represents a 20% increase from uh, 2015. Overdoses related to illegally manufactured fentanyl represent the greatest contribution to the increase, accounting for 20,000 deaths in total. Heroin accounting for 15,000 and prescription drugs for less than 15,000. 2016, former President Obama asked Congress for over a billion dollars to fight the opioid epidemic. 2017, President Trump declares a national public health emergency to combat the opioid crisis. Following year 2018, the National District Attorneys Association, in his first white paper on the opioid crisis, urges law enforcement agencies and prosecutors to treat every overdose death as a homicide and assign homicide detectives to respond to these saints. And the National District Attorneys Association sounds like a bunch of stupid cunts. Fuck those idiots. Fucking lawyers. I know there's a lot of good ones, truly, but God damn it, the bad ones. I wish I could fucking gather them up, put them on an island, and nuke it. The paper's authors argued that the potential of being charged with homicide provided an added incentive for a dealer to cooperate with law enforcement and provide other actionable intelligence for broader distribution networks. State prosecutors can now exert leverage by threatening defendants with the prospect of federal charges. The mandatory minimum federal sentence for overdose homicide, 20 years. Nice. State prosecutors can also send people who are, uh, you know, not violent, or they can send, you know, people who are not violent, who are just struggling with a really powerfully addictive drug to prison for at least 20 years. That's fucking great. Same year, a nonprofit called the Urban Survivors Union launched Reframe the Blame, a campaign that urges users to sign a do not prosecute document. I love this. The directive reads in part, if I die of an untimely accidental overdose, I ask that you do not use my accidental overdose as a tool of your drug war to blame and charge others with murder or homicide. Hail fucking Nimrod, Urban Survivors Union. Fuck those dumb shit moralist prosecutors and politicians getting pats on the back from the country club crowd for doing shit they're fucking too willfully ignorant to understand. Ah! Early this year, February 3rd, the New York Times releases an article detailing how McKinsey and company, the consultant to blue chip corporations and governments around the world, has agreed to pay nearly $600 million to settle investigations into its role in helping turbocharge opioid sales. Uh, the firm reached a $573 million agreement with attorneys... Uh, in 47 states, the District of Columbia, and five territories. And guess how many of them are getting a minute, uh, man, or excuse me, minimum 20-year sentence? Fucking zero. So that's cool. That's fair. The settlements come after lawsuits unearthed a trove of documents showing how McKinsey worked to drive sales of Purdue Pharma's OxyContin painkiller. The firm told Purdue that it could band together with other opioid makers to head off strict treatment by the Food and Drug Administration. The records highlight McKinsey's close relationship with Purdue over many years. In 2009, the firm wrote a report for Purdue saying that new sales tactics would increase sales of OxyContin by as much as $400 million annually and suggested sales drivers based on the idea that opioids reduce stress and make patients more optimistic and less isolated, according to a lawsuit filed in 2018 by Massachusetts, because that's all bullshit. McKinsey worked with Purdue executives in finding ways to counter the emotional messages from mothers with teenagers that overdose on the drug. These fucking monsters. But they're not going to prison for at least 20 years. In a 2017 slide pre- uh, presentation for Purdue, McKinsey laid out several options to shore up sales. One was to give distributors a rebate for every OxyContin overdose attributable to pills they sold. And again, these people don't go to prison. They never do. Easier to punish the poor, those who can't afford powerful lobbyists and a powerful defense team. Throw some more poor people under the wheels of the justice bus. Cue upper middle class applause. Yay. We can feel like our kids are safer now, even though statistically they are not. Cue politicians shaking their hands fucking pieces of shit. By 2018, senior executives at McKinsey were becoming aware that they might face liability for their opioid work 
After Massachusetts sued Purdue, Martin Elling, a leader in the firm's pharmaceutical practice, wrote to another partner, it probably makes sense to have a quick conversation with the risk committee to see if we should be doing anything other than eliminating all of our documents and emails. <laughs> Uh, suspect not, but as, uh, things get tougher, there are someone there, uh, Jesus Christ, suspect not, but as things get tougher there, someone might turn to us. I don't know what the last part means. Kevin Sneeder, the firm's global managing partner said, we deeply regret that we did not adequately acknowledge the tragic consequences of the epidemic unfolding in our communities with this agreement. We hope to be part of the solution to the opioid crisis in the U S yeah. Part of the solution to the problem you fucking created in the settlement. The consulting firm will not admit wrongdoing. Cool, according to the multi-state settlement, but will agree to court-ordered restrictions on its work with some types of addictive narcotics, as well as provide email records of communications inside the firm. Meanwhile, poor poor, poor people, yeah, going to prison for murder. Fucking great. Uh, the blame game for the opioid epidemic continues. On March 5th, 2021, a doctor who prescribed opioids charged with five counts of murder. For years, there were troubling signs about George Blatty's medical practice. In 2018, he set up a makeshift office in an old Radio Shack store. It's signs still visible outside the merchandise rack still on the walls, prosecutors said. Mr. Blatty made the empty Radio Shack in a suburban strip mall his office for a period of about 10 months before 2018 and 2019. Uh, they rented space, or the rented space in Franklin Square, a hamlet on Long Island, bore no resemblance to a traditional doctor's office. The lone medical device in the office was a blood pressure cuff, prosecutors said. So this, this is pretty sketchy. There was rust and water damage on the ceiling, no heating system. Visitors had to wear winter jackets and hats on cold days. Uh, later, he began meeting patients in his car in parking lots of hotels on Long Island or uh, sometimes at a nearby Dunkin' Donuts. Jesus Christ, just at the Dunkin' Donuts would prescribe pain medication without conducting any examination. Many of his patients appeared uh, to be already struggling with addictions to opioids or other drugs, uh, but the doctor, 75 years old now, just kept prescribing more. One of his patients, Michael Kinzer, a smoker with back pain, asthma, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, started seeing Mr. Blatty in 2013, according to court documents. The electrician from Valley Steam was hospitalized for an overdose in October 2016, eight days after Mr. Blatty prescribed him morphine. Um, the following month, according to court documents, Mr. Blatty prescribed Xanax and OxyContin, a combination prosecutors say could be fatal, especially for individuals with decreased breathing capacity. Mr. Kinzer, 44, died two days later. Blatty would be arrested in 2019. Uh, prosecutors took the unusual step of charging Mr. Blatty with the murders of five of his patients whose deaths were opioid-related. The charges, prosecutors said, marked the first time that a doctor in New York had been charged with second-degree murder under the legal theory that depraved indifference to human life led to the patient's deaths. Madeline Singus, the Nassau County District Attorney, called Mr. Blatty a serial killer who had knowingly prescribed huge amounts of painkillers to his patients, many of whom were already addicted to opioids or other drugs. Mr. Blatty pleaded not guilty to the five counts of murder and 11 counts of reckless endangerment in the first degree. Does this guy sound like a good dude? No. Sounds like a fucking quack, and he does sound like, uh, you know, maybe he should be charged with murder. But if he's going to be charged with murder, why aren't the big pharma execs charged with murder, right? If you follow that logic, like charging low-level, uh, you know, dealers with murder, charging doctors with murder has been seen by some in law enforcement as a way to combat the opioid epidemic. In 2011, 88 doctors faced drug-related criminal charges, civil lawsuits, and medical license suspensions. In 2019, that number was 477. And while criminal charges for overdose deaths, particularly murder charges, are rare, their frequency has been increasing. In 2020, there were 50 different drug-related criminal cases against doctors, though we don't know the specific charges. In New York, a pain doctor in Queens convicted of manslaughter in 2014 and the overdose death of two patients. California, a doctor convicted of three counts of murder in 2015 for prescribing large amounts of addictive drugs to patients who did not need them and then died of overdoses. But these cases can be tricky because the burden of proof, proving that it's the doctor's fault, 
difficult, uh, you know, uh, the difficult case for the prosecution to make. Doctor in California was accused of over overprescribing certain drugs, including opioids, acquitted in 2019 in the deaths of two of his patients. The jury failed to reach a verdict in other charges. And that brings us to the most recent, though certainly not the last, uh, you know, development in this ongoing epidemic. Let's hop out of our time like timeline and look again at some reasons for the epidemic as well as some possible solutions. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So if people have been using opium and its chemical descendants, you know, for thousands of years, what's caused the recent opioid epidemic? The surge in addiction and fatalities that we've seen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Before I address that, uh, I do have one final sponsor and uh, not one that I like, actually. This is a sponsor I, I hate. <sighs> Today's Time Suck, unfortunately, is brought to you by, uh, well, it's a PSA. Sponsored by the Association of Safe Substances, Cunningly Labeled Opiates, or Wicked Narcotics. Ass Clown. Paid for by the Pharmaceutical United States Scapegoat Society, Puss. Are you struggling with an opioid addiction? I don't know you. I don't know your situation. But I do know it's your fault. You want to blame an opioid manufacturer for creating something in the lab much stronger and much more addictive than morphine or even heroin that was overly prescribed to you by doctors pressured to prescribe it because of legislation, big pharma lobbyists pressured politicians to pass if they wanted to get their next campaign funded? Yeah, okay, sure. That's why you're addicted. No, it's your fault. It's not because these drugs were lab designed to quickly blow up your opioid receptors and tweak your brain chemistry almost instantaneously to the point of extreme physical dependence. No, it's your fault. Weak character, bad parenting, Poor choices, substandard morals, probably all of that. I don't know you, but I do know it's your fault. You're not a victim. Sure, maybe you were prescribed a powerful painkiller taken after an injury you didn't cause, and then you lost your job and health insurance and couldn't afford the prescription meds anymore and chose to use street-level opioids, 50 times less expensive, so you can still manage the pain that left you unable to get out of bed normally and feed your new addiction, and then you get arrested for a Schedule One controlled substance abuse and are sent to prison. And that is somehow Big Pharma's fault? No, it's your fault. For more information on how your opioid addiction is 150% your fault and yours alone, please go to itsyourfault.org. This PSA again is brought to you by the Association of Safe Substances, Cunningly Labeled Opiates or Wicked Narcotics, Ass Clown, and paid for by the Pharmaceutical United States Scapegoat Society, Plus. Ugh, like I said, I really don't like that sponsor, but uh, <laughs> They got deep pockets and they pay well. Back to my uh, pre-that nonsense question. If people have been using opium and its chemical descendants for thousands of years, what's caused the recent opioid epidemic? The surge in addiction and fatalities that we've seen over the last 20 or so years, right? We've already talked about doctors prescribing more opioids to treat pain. We talked about how in the earlier part of the 20th century, doctors were typically cautious about prescribing pain medication. They restrained their use of pain prescriptions, which meant that pills were harder to obtain. But then the mentality regarding pain management shifted. It was seen as immoral not to give suffering people the drugs that would ease their suffering. And those drugs, typically opioids. As a result, huge emphasis on responding swiftly to patient pain in the 80s and 90s. Big pharma drug companies like Purdue now step in falsely claim that their products are not addictive, not that addictive, and they're really good at managing pain. Now doctors are trained to prescribe painkillers early and often, all the time. In fact, to this day, many doctors will receive lower patient evaluation sources still, which are legally linked to hospital payments if they don't prescribe opioids. 
In short, physicians feel pressure from both their workplaces and their patients to pull out the prescription pads. But then, now maybe they'll be charged with murder? What the fuck? Here's how Steve Diaz, an emergency medicine doctor in Maine, described the situation to USA Today in 2016. The patient says, I'm in pain and you're not meeting my needs. And doctors might say, I'm being graded on this. I'll give this patient something to get them over the hump, he said. No one will overtly say, I'm doing this to not get a bad score, but in the back of their mind, how alarming. So this pressure, this system, it definitely has helped massively increase the prevalence of powerful addictive opioids. The more prescriptions that go out, the more get abused, the more people end up seeking out street opiates when they're no longer prescribed opioids or can't afford prescription prices any longer. Now let's talk about another opioid epidemic factor, loneliness and social disconnection. The age of the internet, social media, overwork, other factors may be linked to the explosion of opioids. In this popular TED Talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong, British journalist and author jo uh, Johan Hari highlights the link between addiction and social bonding. When we don't connect with one another, we turn to other substances to get the same feeling of well-being, he says. We connect with drugs rather than one another. If we don't address the pain of personal isolation, we will not stem the tide of the overdose epidemic. The rise of social media platforms is not helping. In fact, the illusion of connectivity may be contributing to our lack of it. Uh, according to researchers at the University of Pittsburgh, the people who reported spending the most time on social media, more than two hours a day, had twice the odds of perceived social isolation than those who said they spent half an hour per day or less on those sites. How sad is that? Social media fueling the opioid crisis as it also fuels so many dumb shit conspiracies. All these illogical echo chambers out there stressing so many of us out. Then there are these opioids that for a little while will make everything feel okay again. While researchers noted that heavy social media use does not necessarily cause social isolation, it's clear that we have a real issue with social isolation in our modern world. And that translates to vulnerability for drug addiction. And social isolation means mental health issues, either previously diagnosed or new, can ramp up. Anxiety disorders now affect 40 million adults in the U.S., according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. That makes anxiety the most prevalent mental illness in the country, impacting over 18% of the adult population, plus depression, which often co-occurs with anxiety, leading cause of disability in the U.S. among people aged 15 to 44. We now know that many people who struggle with addiction have a dual diagnosis, a substance abuse issue combined with a mental health concern. How the fuck do we make things better? Here are a few possibilities to maybe, hopefully, help curtail the opioid epidemic. Education, education, education. Simple solutions to complex problems do not fucking work. Take your simple slogans, shove them up your ass. Like, just say no. Just tossing people in cells when they're naughty doesn't work, never will. It's important to educate doctors about the dangers of overprescribing opioids as well. Teach proven research-based pain management therapies and techniques that don't rely, on, don't rely on opioids. Those are out there. Important to educate society on what drugs are out there, what they do, how to use them more safely, right? Again, just telling people, just say no. That shit like that's idiotic. Talk to your kids about what drugs actually do, how dangerous they are. Don't insult their intelligence by just telling them they're bad. Don't do them. Talk to them about fucking everything in depth, sex, drugs, religion, politics, have real discussions. Might not save them from making terrible mistakes, but every fiber of my being is screaming it will help. As a, as a society, we should take that approach. Talk about shit at length and in depth and without just sitting around screaming at each other. Do you have a logical reason for your dissenting point of view about a topic as serious as opioid abuse? No, then go do some research until you can bring one to the conversation. We need intelligent, well-researched discussions in order to help form solutions to problems as complex as this. And we need to accept that at the end of the day, people will A, always fucking use drugs and B, always die from abusing them. We can focus on reducing the deaths while also understanding that you can't save everyone, right? And people who don't understand that at the voting polls, they can go suck a fucking bag of dicks. We can be reasonable. 
to help curb this epidemic, also necessary to make changes to the healthcare system to prevent overprescribing and alleviate the pressure on doctors to overprescribe. For example, by changing the form and content of patient satisfaction surveys, also employing the use of alternative pain management therapies. Looking at some of you nefarious big pharma execs and lobbyists who are the reason we have our current system. Maybe try putting people's lives before profits for fucking once. We need to curtail aggressive marketing by drug companies. We need to punish white collar crime much more severely than street level crime. And as we just saw, it's important to maintain social connections. We need to create families and communities characterized by connection, purposefully putting down our devices, signaling out or signing out, excuse me, of social media, conversing heart to heart more often. Now let's recap. The opioid epidemic. It's a massive topic. All the stories of opioid users, as well as developments in drug use and law enforcement techniques, as well as public health measures, could easily make for an entire podcast series. So much more to cover, but I think we covered a fair amount in a little over, you know, two and a half hours. The opioid epidemic refers to the rise in opioid addiction and opioid-related deaths over the past 30 or so years, beginning when doctors and pharmaceutical companies started thinking that some synthetically produced opioids were less harmful than previous types of opioids, Right? That line of thinking, not new. People at one time thought heroin was less dangerous than morphine. Medicine, not always an exact science. In our entire history, however long that will be, though, uh, you know, or long will be, we'll probably never know everything we need to know about how to treat the human body. Or at least that's a long ways away. Our meat sack body is pretty, pretty complex, which is why we need to focus on becoming robots and turn Earth into a real-life Westworld. Digital immortality, that's where we should focus. But that's not helping today's topic. With the rise of these opioids, in the 1990s and 2000s, more and more people become addicted to opioids, then turn into illicit drugs or illicitly prescribed, you know, uh, medications to get their fix. Street drugs mixed with other drugs like super strong fentanyl cause more overdose overdose deaths. Get those fentanyl test strips, please, if you're going to fuck around with this stuff. Uh, our law enforcement system has struggled with how to approach these overdose deaths, with how to discourage people from using drugs. They've done everything from charging small-time dealers to doctors who write prescriptions. Even pharmaceutical companies have had their days in court, but it's not likely that will stop manufacturing or that they will stop manufacturing opioids. Just as it's not likely, people will stop taking them. Looking forward, it's important that we educate doctors on prescribing opioids, look into other ways of treating pain. Also important that we emphasize social connection and other ways to get those natural highs. The feelings of stability and safety that don't come from something you inject, but from a safe, happy environment. It's important we educate ourselves and our kids about drugs. I wish we could, you know, legalize them. Put all the money we currently spend fighting the drug war into rehab and education, but that probably won't happen anytime soon. In the meantime, let's keep talking. Let's have some grace, empathy, understanding for opiate addicts. The shit's no joke. How sad to take something because you're already in pain, physical or mental or both. Then the shit takes hold of you. It leaves you feeling so much more pain. Then the legal system treats you like a fucking murderer. We live in a crazy world. Let's try and re-legislate it to make it a bit less crazy. Pay attention to what politicians have to say on this issue, where they stand. And if they stand in the middle of a big old pile of high and mighty bullshit, maybe not vote for those motherfuckers anymore. My preaching's done today. For, for today. Help us figure all this out, Nimrod. I look to your divine ball sack for celestial guidance. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, meat sacks love opium. Feels great. We've been using it for uh, thousands and thousands of years. Going back at least 5,500 years far back as the ancient Sumerians, at least. Number two, the opioid crisis has taken a huge toll on the U.S. From 1999 to 2017, more than 399,000 people died from drug overdoses that involved prescription and or illicit opioids. In 2017 alone, there were 70,000 recorded drug overdose deaths. Of those deaths, 47,600 involved an opioid. 
We recently passed our first 100,000 drug overdoses in a single 12-month span, over 75,000 of those deaths from opioids. But as we learned from Dr. Hart, maybe those deaths weren't counted in a way that accurately represents the true toll. Still, an enormous number of people have died. Number three, doctors are still trying to figure out the best and safest way to manage pain. It was thought that opium was fine to consume for years. Then the Civil War and the rise of drug addiction changed people's minds. Doctors avoided prescribing opioids for the first half of the 20th century, leading many cancer patients and other people suffering to get no relief, and that's not good. Before the perspective flipped and doctors began to over-prescribe opioids, that's not good either. Why do we have to be so extreme? Someday, I hope someone can invent a true miracle drug, some kind of pain reliever that lessens pain significantly without fucking up our opioid receptors or sending us into a dangerous addiction. I think someone will. Doctors and researchers, they don't always get it right. Not initially, but eventually they usually do. Scientists, they're a pretty smart bunch. Yeah, they fuck up, you know, from time to time because they're fallible, you know, human beings. But from where I sit, uh, they seem to have the best batting average out of any group of meat sacks when it comes to figuring out how to improve our quality of life here on this big floating space rock drastically. Number four, who is to blame for the opioid epidemic? Fuck if I know. God, Mother Nature. We meat sacks did not invent opiates. They were here when we showed up. Probably big pharma lobbyists the most, though. Uh, do we blame pharmaceutical companies and the firms they worked with uh, who estimated the number of overdoses, uh, you know, and still kept pushing sales of opi opioids? Uh, do we blame the small-time dealers and sellers? Do we blame politicians who pass bullshit drug laws? Do we blame law enforcement and lawyers who arrest and prosecute addicts for essentially becoming addicted to really addictive drugs? Do we blame doctors? Do we blame ourselves for not educating ourselves and our children on opioids enough? I think we mostly blame big pharma. But the blame, you know, spread around. Number five, new info. If you're struggling with opioid addiction, get help. Nimrod commands it. Don't become part of the shitty stats that I've shared here today, you beautiful bastard. Don't feel ashamed for being powerfully addicted to a drug that grabs a hold of your head and skull fucks you. Opioids are so powerful, stronger than, you know, me, stronger than you. Don't beat yourself up. Try and tough guy that shit out. Beat an opioid addiction. I guess it may work for some on their own, but for most of us, it's like trying to beat a grizzly bear in a bare knuckle boxing match. There's a lot of places to go for help. One good place to start would be the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline. Uh, SAMHSA's National Helpline, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. A confidential, free, 24-hour day, 24-hour a day, 365-day-a-year uh, information service in English and Spanish for individuals and family members facing mental and or substance use disorders. So call it. Lucifina won't fuck you or let you uh, get any more dick if you don't. She seems serious. No butt, no dick, no puss. Not until you see you got some help. Somebody who loves you, whether you know it or not, is dying for you to make that call. Maybe that somebody is you. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The opioid epidemic has been sucked. Man, I feel like I still should have uh, done more on it, but I also feel like I could have spent a second week on it and still feel this way at the end of the recording. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. She's an all-star. She does so many other things that allows me the time necessary to get these put together every week. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, uh, even, uh, sorry, thanks to Sophie Evans for the initial research this week. She killed it. Thanks to Bitelixir for keeping the Time Suck app running smooth. Logan, the art warlock, Keith, our creative director, creating all that merch at badmagicmerch.com and more. Thanks also to Liz, the Enchantress Hernandez, running our Cult of the Curious Facebook private page. Uh, currently Cult of the Curious 2 and her wonderful all-seen eyes moderators. Uh, and thanks to Liz for helping Logan with socials. Thanks to Beefsteak and his mod squad, keeping over 10,000 meat sacks happy on Discord. 
Next Monday on Time Suck, we go full Sons of Anarchy. God, I love that show. I watch every episode, a lot of them twice. Uh, the Space Sisters have voted that we suck the notorious and exclusive motorcycle group known as the Hells Angels. We're going to look at their initiation rituals, cryptic patches, many links to violence across five continents over the course of several decades. What's true? What's hyperbole? What's real? What's propaganda? We'll also investigate the impact they've made on several nations' cultures, including their unique place in Hollywood over the years. Our journey will take us to American GIs fighting in World War II and the new American motorcycle company they became loyal to. Some of them. That will lead us directly to the modern motorcycle clubs that spawned the outlaw bikers known as One Percenters, including the Hells Angels. That was hilarious. I don't know if you can hear it in the recording, but a motorcycle just revved their engine just right by the window as I said that. Uh, along the way, we'll meet some unique characters and follow the angels' evolution from patriotic ruffians to hired muscle to legit, sophisticated, organized criminals to the 70s and on into the early 21st century. We'll try and answer the question, are the Hells Angels still a dangerous criminal organization today? Or just some motorcycle-loving dudes who like to look tough? Come suck the Hells Angels with me next Monday. The Space Lizards never lead us astray. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Uh, I'm glad there is no medical terms that I can remember these updates. My mush mouth feels like it just uh, just got uh, punished for a couple hours. First update, this really made me laugh. Lucifina Loving Meat Sack Nicole writes, Dear Dan, just so you know, I'm part of the BDSM community. I bought the Meat Sack duffel bag with the explicit purpose of using it for my kink gear. It works great, roomy enough for my flogger, paddles, riding crops, all my ropes. The end pockets are great for a small first aid kit and safety shears. I can't wait for all the comments I'm going to get about my meat sack. I fucking, I love it, Nicole. Serious or joking? I love this. I hope you actually do use a duffel bag decorated to look like actual meat to hold your sex gear in. I hope you go full incubus and make some sex slaves nervous. Lay down and submit while I grab my tool slave. Incubus needs to bring out the drill dough to prepare you for sexual ascension. Smart sucker Chris Allen had me concerned with the start of this following message. Hey, Mr. Bitchfucker, Trucker, Sucker. I'm cruising through the catalog right now, and I wanted to give you a bit of insight from an engineer on a hot-button issue. We can both agree the world isn't flat, but I think we differ when it comes to whether anything south of the equator exists. Gravity would pull everyone down into space if they didn't have on ground harnesses, and I've never seen people wearing ground harnesses, so I will bet on those places not existing. This is a joke. Please do not humiliate me. Also, if you give a shout-out to my buddy Nick, He's the one who got me into the show and he's going to be getting married soon. I think he'll be all caught up on the show by the wedding. This would definitely add to his great day. Keep trucking, fucking, clucking, ducking, shucking, sucking. Mr. Dr. Professor, Reverend Cummins, with love, Chris Allen. Thank you, Chris. When I read the first few sentences, I was rolling my eyes. I was like, oh, here we go. Glad you were just joking. Uh, and yes, congrats, Nick. Enjoy your big upcoming day. Uh, remember this, your and your partner's day. No one else's. Fuck any family members who try and hijack it. Make it about them. It's not mommy's day. It's not mommy-in-law's day. Ah, it's your day. You're on your partner's day. Uh, sucker Sarah C. gave me some cool info. I'd like to pass along to you. She writes, listening to the Menendez episode and the murder you talk about in Idaho, small town murder covered. I was like, wait, why does this murder sound so familiar? It was episode 67 of small town murder. James and Jimmy did a great job covering it. Sorry for the weird uh, small town murder plug. Nobody's, uh, not, not at all. But love when my podcast crossover. Uh, I did not know that, Sarah. I am sure James and Jimmy killed it. I'm sure they did a fantastic job in the story of Sarah Marie Johnson uh, murdering her parents in Bellevue, Idaho in 2003. Uh, happy to mention their podcast. I just talked to Jimmy the other week on the phone. Good guys. 
Uh, Lindsay talks to uh, yeah uh, Sarah all the time. James and me don't talk as much as we should because we're always researching and we don't want to be pulled away. Now, a time-sucking pastor shares a nice reminder for me to keep focusing on individual merit, even when the individual belongs to a group I maybe struggle to accept at times. This pastor writes, hey, Dan, I'm a longtime sucker. Just signed into the website. I thought you might be interested to know that I'm a pastor. I love your podcast and learn a lot from it. You have a great mixture of information, insight, and humor, which makes it a great way to learn about some very interesting topics. I also want to say that while I appreciate your, oh, I also want to say that I appreciate your open mind to so many things and that while you despise fundamental extremists of all religions, you respect and admire many of all faiths who seek to practice their faith. Anyway, it is a refreshing thing in a world so polarized by everything from religion to politics to race and gender. Thanks again, Pastor Tucker. It is way too polarized. I, it appears way too polarized. I will say I've been having more conversations with uh, individuals out in the world about uh, all these polarizing issues. And I think it's the vocal minority riling up on both sides, extreme left, extreme right. I still do think most people are in the middle. But uh, but thank you, Pastor Sucker. I bet you're a great, compassionate pastor, truly. Uh, I hope you feel the same way about your congregation that you do about me, right? That you can respect and admire some of them, even when they deviate from some of your teachings. I, I bet you do that. And thanks for reminding me to not be careful or to be careful, you know, about uh, my judgment, which you weren't even really doing, but it made me think about that. Like, I, you know, I, I shouldn't be uh, too judgmental about people who belong to groups. I don't understand. Uh, if the message you uh, uh, heard does get lost, yes, I, I, I have a, a great admiration for many Christians, including many evangelicals uh, and people of other religions. I admire people on the right, the left, the middle, people who are atheists, Catholics, Mormons, you know, uh, Buddhists, Hinduists. Is that how you say it? Hindus? There we go. Why did I say Hinduists? <laughs> Scientologists, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, yeah, sure. Looking at Tom Cruise and Serena Williams, you know, for different reasons. I'm not kidding about Tom Cruise, by the way. I, I've teased him a lot, but he's a great actor and he's done a lot of philanthropy. So I might not like Scientology, but I, I like some of the things he's done. Too easy to write off a whole group of people a lot of times. Uh, I know there are good big pharma lobbyists even and execs in case that got lost today. Some of the bad ones I do want to set on fire. Uh, you know, I know that there's good tough on crime, drug crime legislators, even though I strongly disagree with some of uh, their beliefs. And, you know, even Nancy Reagan. Did some good stuff. Even Ronald Reagan did some good stuff. Not so sure about Nixon. One last update on Boone Helm, the Kentucky cannibal episode from former law enforcement sucker, Kathy Bloomhagen. Kathy writes, hey, just wanted to write in regarding the suspicion you had about Plummer, the lawman, possible outlaw during that episode. You talked about how he ended up killing the one lady's husband after he tried to shoot Plummer and how she ran into the street freaking out about it, blaming him. I spent almost 20 years in law enforcement and have seen on multiple occasions where a victim of domestic abuse excuse me, will uh, refuse charges or change her story about their abuser when it comes time for court and the charges get dropped, all for the cycle to continue, which is so sad. I presume it was just as bad then when women rarely worked outside the home or had their own money and retaining one's honor was important. I also had a grandmother who didn't divorce her abusive husband. Yes, my grandfather, he's a piece of shit. Nobody in the family has anything to do with anymore, so fuck that guy for 50 years. Religion and social family pressure can be tough to stand up against. Thankful to live in today's society. Thanks for the great episodes, Cat. P.S. Also, thanks for mentioning Bannock, Montana's ghost town. My fiance and I are going to check it out when we get married in Big Sky next year. Also really enjoyed your show in Kansas City, Missouri. Well, thank you, Kat. Uh, great reminder that yes, just because the woman suddenly said that Plummer didn't need to shoot her abusive husband, that doesn't mean that uh, his killing of that dude was not justified. Emotions in an abuser-victim relationship can be yeah, pretty complex. I did not think of that in the context of Plummer. Maybe he really was slandered. Maybe he was an innocent victim of mob mentality. Right? And not the leader of the innocents. And I hope you have fun in Bannock. I need to check that out someday. And congrats on your, congrats on your upcoming marriage. Big Sky is beautiful. 
So much of Montana. So beautiful. Uh, thanks for coming to a show and hail Nimrod, everyone. Another, another big episode this week. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Don't do fucking fentanyl this week or any week ever. And if you're going to dick around with narcotics, get those fentanyl test strips. You can order them on uh, Amazon. I, I may have done that myself. Now keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Yeah, he can't always be all, all jacked up. That's not what he goes through life, you know. Sometimes, yeah, you want to uh, kind of Mr. Kool-Aid it and just fucking kick your way through a wall. You know, just bust into a room, just like, oh, yeah. Get everybody to really pay attention to you. Do some damage. Kick some ass, whatever. Sometimes, maybe you just want to lay in the shadows. Maybe you just want to lay in the corner, drink a little Whipple. Chill. Relax. Play with your nipples. Check out what people are talking about. Now feel like you need to contribute. Maybe there's somebody across the room. Maybe they got interesting hair and you just want to count their hairs. You want to take four hours to do it. So do it with Whipple. Chill. Maybe you want to think about how many different flavors of ice cream there are. How many more there could be if people just started mixing the existed flavors and new combinations. I mean, if there's hundreds of combinations and you took the first of the hundreds of combinations and just mixed that with each of the other combinations and then went forward with the additional combinations that would just exponentially increase the amount of flavors into new flavors that you could then continue to mix and match it. Maybe you just want to lay on the ground and think about that for eight hours. Do it. Whipple. Chill. Maybe you just want to take too long to use words during sentences and make podcast listeners hanging wrapped in anticipation something clever you might be saying coming up but you don't have anything clever this time you fucked up drank a whole bottle of whip all chill and you just want to sleep are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last